Man of Steel Answers Insight Commentary Episode 66 East I have so many questions Then of course there's the question on everyone's mind Then I'll ask the obvious question Start asking questions You're the answer son Welcome to Mosaic. I'm Doc and I cover a mosaic of topics for fans who love the Man of Steel and look forward to the future while learning from the past. This episode looks at learning from the East. This show dives deep into DC Films for answers and insight as we celebrate the films that give us so much. Reasonable minds will differ, but this is a show for fans who love DC Films and who love to chew their food. <laughs> Greetings and salutations. I hope you've had a happy summer. Every episode, we try to expand your appreciation for these films and give you a new way to see them. Last episode, we talked about how other cultures generally can help us reflect on our own cognition clearer. This episode, we're going to look specifically at East and West, survey some scientific studies, the psychology, philosophy, and cultural differences. Despite an emphasis on the differences, remember that we're ultimately all human who share much more in common than what sets us apart. I don't think I can ever say enough disclaimers around this topic, but in comparing East and West, we're discussing overall observable trends, not monolithic, deterministic absolutes. So the science and the psychology are obviously averages and ranges philosophy and culture too. Within any group or geographical region, reasonable minds will differ. Quote-unquote Western philosophy or culture is composed of philosophers who debate and cultures that clash. And so it is for the quote-unquote East, which for the purposes of this episode were confining primarily to China, Korea, and Japan, simply because that's who the researchers that we'll be discussing focused on. And it would be absolutely absurd to conflate their philosophies and cultures as one homogeneous monolithic thing. But overall, and on average, they differ in ways that can be compared to the West. Despite these pervasive average differences, any individual can be primed and prompted or prepared to think along the entire spectrum of human cognition and tendency. Meaning that once you're cognizant of these diverse modes of thought, you can borrow or adopt those other ways of thinking and gain the benefits as well. Which is exactly the point of this episode, to engage in and benefit from viewpoint diversity. We'll show you how Eastern thinking can assist with these five things. One, draw out more details from the films we watch, to see more than just the focal characters and catch more information. Two, to better appreciate context and connections, to recognize circumstances and situations, relationships and motivations, change and transformation, and come away with a richer experience experience. 3. Understand the wisdom in saying less, but listening more. To see Superman's dialogue as sophisticated instead of just sparse. 4. Encourage understanding and dialogue with the other over argument. To reconcile opposing views rather than having to choose who wins between Batman and Superman. 
and 5. Have greater empathy instead of imposing our own outlooks to see the other side instead of starting off assuming that they're wrong. So let's start with the science and something that we've discussed last episode. The fundamental attribution error is committed when we label or attribute a person's permanent character or disposition for behavior that is circumstantial or situational. If someone falls once, they become fallen. Any one act or mistake becomes who they are to their core when the FAE is being committed. It is the quintessential cognitive bias that embodies the disagreement between Batman and Superman, and how producer Kurt Kanemoto summarizes the theme of the film, quote, Are we too quick to judge sometimes? Do we act on impulse? Do we act on disinformation? Do we have all the facts before we do something? That's the takeaway of the film, unquote. Now, here's the interesting thing. According to decades of robust and repeated psychological studies, East Asians are much less prone to committing the fundamental attribution error. One thing I was wondering when I was reading about this is how much could this vary between different types of cultures and Mm -hmm. backgrounds and how much is this just a fundamental part of every human brain? And it looks like there is some role that culture plays in how strong the FAE is, right? Yeah. And specifically, uh, what differences you're going to see between West and East, Mm -hmm. uh, between uh, American culture and, say, Chinese culture or Korean culture or Japanese culture, etc. A little American exceptionalism, if you want to call it that, in regard to our tendency to engage uh, FAE. Let me guess, we're doing worse. Yeah, we're worse. That's the basic take-home, but we're going to get into the details here. This comes from a really cool paper titled Cultural and Causal Cognition from Current Directions in Psychological Science, and this is from Nisbet and Noren Zion. Basically, here's the idea. So for a while, social psychologists assumed that the way we make causal judgments is universal, that it's the same across all cultures. This, of course, is always one of the potential problems for a given study or a hypothesis. I mean, the classic example of this is when you have a small study that is using only college students. Like East Coast college students in the United States and extrapolating from that to something about the way brains work in Homo sapiens. Exactly. You know, maybe not everybody's brain is the same as what's prevalent among that group. Right. Basically, this paper speaks to that, like looks at the cultural differences in FA first to see if there are differences and then also to talk about why that could be. And so Noren Zion and Nesbitt, they point out that subsequent studies do seem to reveal that FAE is harder to demonstrate in Asian populations. And this was like multiple studies, Yeah, multiple right? studies. So just a taste here of them. 1984 study from Miller showed that Hindu Indians lean toward a situational explanation for ordinary life events. Mm-hmm. A 1994 study from Morris and Ping found that Chinese newspapers and Chinese students living in America were more likely to explain murders by both Chinese and American perpetrators in situational and societal terms while American newspapers and American students tended to focus on the perpetrator's presumed dispositions. Yeah, their internal traits. Right. Also, in 1994, Morris and Ping, they showed a a cartoon of a fish to American and Chinese test subjects. And the Chinese subjects attributed its behavior to external and group factors, while Americans favored internal factors. Another study found the same thing with, quote, schematically drawn, ambiguous physical events. Okay. (laughs) So in that last example, I think that's, that's 
really essential here is because we're not even talking about human behavior, the anthropomorphized behavior of a cartoon fish, but we're talking about the physical world itself, the role that environment has on objects. Americans focused on the properties of the ball, while the Chinese test subjects focused on the holistic reality in which the ball existed. So the fundamental attribution error was coined by Lee Ross in collaboration with Richard Nisbet. Dr. Nisbet is an American social psychologist of considerable influence on his field for the past 40 years. His career has covered a diversity of topics such as intelligence, honor culture, education, and wisdom. He's been cited nearly 100,000 times, with an H index over 100. His major contributions has been his early work on unconscious cognition and and attributions, which have been the foundation of much of today's contemporary behavioral economic theory and cognitive bias research. For this episode, we're interested in his work on East and West cognitive differences. And before we dive in, let's just get that obligatory disclaimer out there. This is not a genetic or racial claim, but a cultural observation. And of course, these are population studies and not deterministic declarations about anyone in individual or an excuse to stereotype them. And among a million more unspoken disclaimers is that these observations do not qualitatively conclude the outcomes to be better or worse. The researchers are not saying that one culture is quote-unquote better. But I might as well let Dr. Nisbet speak for himself. We certainly do get variation in the way people behave in our experiments. We don't ever, of course, and maybe I should have started early by saying this, we don't find ever that all of the Asians behave in one way and all of the Westerners behave in another way. There's always a distribution. So when I make these pronouncements about the way people behave differently, I'm always talking about on average, though in fact a lot of our differences are quite large, really enough to make a huge difference in thinking in everyday life. I think there's no part of it is genetic. I think it's all environmental. Our main reason for believing that is that uh, in some of the studies that we do, we look at Asian Americans, and they're always between East Asians and European Americans. Sometimes they're almost identical to European Americans. So really, we know it's not genetic. Let me back up just a bit from that and say why we think these cognitive differences exist. We think that they exist because Asians and Westerners live in very different worlds. Asians live in very complicated social worlds. They have more social obligations. They have a wider range of roles that they have to play with different people. And individualist Westerners live in simpler worlds where they can zero in on some particular goal that they have, some particular thing that they want to achieve without paying that much attention to other people. And we think that that plays a large role in these cognitive differences. When you are making generalizations about cultural differences and cultural psychology and challenging the perception that, gee, we more or less think the same, are you ever accused of being a racist? Well, I've only talked about this basically in front of scientists. And, uh, uh, when they hear our case, they see why we think the way we do. We don't get accused of that. But then, of course, since we don't think that the differences are genetic and have good evidence that that's not the case, it would be unusual to call us racist. Mm -hmm. Now, that said, really, it's Westerners and the rest of the world on the other side, in effect, because Westerners are much more individualistic than other people in general. It's particularly true of East Asians, but it's also true of Africans. It's even true within the European culture 
culture that Americans are more individualist, certainly than Mediterranean Europeans. Even Northwestern Europeans, the English, the Dutch, and so on, are more individualist than Latins. So there's kind of a continuum here, and there's some reason to think that East Asians are on one end of the continuum, but everybody in the world really is less individualist and probably, therefore, shifted in this more circular reasoning direction than Westerners are. But another way of answering the question is, is it a safe thing or an unsafe thing to believe that profound differences exist between peoples in the way something so fundamental as the way they think? And I have three answers to that. The first answer is the differences are there. And given that they're there, as a scientist, I think that normally the assumption ought to be that you're better off knowing if some difference is there than if you don't know the difference is there. A second reason is that it really helps to reduce conflict, I think. There are plenty of occasions of conflict, and they're going to keep on increasing as the world gets smaller and smaller between East Asians and Westerners in terms of their different approach to different subjects. And we're, we're well armed for those kinds of conflicts and helping to diffuse them if we know the true nature of the differences. We don't attribute it to the other person just being a jerk, but to the other person literally having a fundamentally different way of viewing the world. And the third reason is that I think there's a lot wrong with the way Westerners think. I also think there's things wrong with the way Easterners think. And we can hold a mirror up to each other and learn how to correct our own errors. Are you afraid in that your work might be misinterpreted and used by racists to justify their not only thinking, well, they think differently and worse than we do? I can't imagine anybody who knows the full range of our work thinking that it makes any sense to say that one group thinks worse than the other. There are clear advantages to thinking like an Easterner in some respects. I mean, look, just to take the first experiment that I described, being able to see a much wider range of the environment, surely that's something that everyone would want to have, whether Western or Eastern. So it might be something that's teachable. For audio, we'll be pulling from Interviews, a multi-part documentary series that aired on the Korean Education Broadcasting System, or EBS, featuring Dr. Nisbet and his colleagues, and commentary on his book, The Geography of Thought. We're just barely skimming the surface of the 300-page book, the three-hour documentary series, dozens of papers, and hours and hours of other lectures and talks. But the good news is that because much of wisdom is universal, we've already covered a lot of these concepts before. We've done contradiction in our Wonder Woman episode and context in our color grading episode, experience over theory in our strength episode, dynamic change over static permanence in our growth episode. We've considered the holistic over the analytical in our trio of tornado apologetics, narrative over abstraction in our counterfactual storytime episode, and a dozen other ones just going under a different name, approach, or emphasis, like the downfall of dichotomous or all-or-nothing thinking in the context of mental health could be considered non-dualism in Eastern thought. So most of these ideas ought to be familiar, even if they've been arranged or approached in a different way. As an English professor, she writes, I was surprised when one of my students who had been a teacher in China before coming here told me that she didn't understand the requirements of essay structure. I told her to write a thesis statement and then prove its three points in the following paragraphs. She told me if she wrote this way in China, she would be considered stupid. In China, she said, essays were written in a more circular fashion, moving associated ideas closer and closer to the center. I don't know how to write this way myself, but I was impressed by her description. Does that go along with your thesis? Absolutely. It's a perfect example 
example of what we're talking about. In the West, we have a notion of what an essay or a case, a court case, or a policy statement should look like, and it's all pretty much the same kind of outline. You start out with a general statement of the problem, you give a specific hypothesis or suggested solution, you present the evidence in favor of your position, you argue against the reasons that somebody might not believe your position, you summarize and you give a conclusion. This is absolute second nature to us. This structure of rhetoric is simply not understood in the East. They don't do it that way. And it's quite true that they not only don't do it that way, they think it's a way that somebody who wasn't too bright would have to have things done to them. They think it's more literary, more interesting, and ultimately a deeper way to present things to cycle back into the same topic uh, from various directions. We can't cover it all, but you can on your own try to consider the principles or ideas and their implications more broadly and beyond what we expressly state. For example, consider how understanding alternative modes of thought may enlighten you as to somebody who thinks differently, like how a filmmaker with dyslexia may not fall into the patterns of rigid, linear, object-oriented thought easily verbalized into interview sound bites requiring little or no interpretation or digestion, whereas a visual thinker may only translate the breadth of their thoughts into complicated multimodal media where sound bites simply don't suffice and are prone to misinterpretation, misunderstanding, and criticism. You know, just for example. (laughs) Okay, so the general thesis is that applying Eastern thought can help us better understand these characters, films, and filmmakers, like the conflict between Batman and Superman, or between Superman and the audience. Using East and West to illustrate, many thematic differences repeatedly emerge through different studies and experiments. In the culture map, Aaron Meyer plots 55 countries along eight different dimensions, and here we're just going to focus on two. Object versus context, analysis versus holism. And there is so much more that we could say about these other dimensions, like static versus dynamic, or egocentric versus relational, but fortunately, for the sake of concision, we're going to count those as covered by our earlier episodes on growth or commitment. In the West, we have more of a predisposition for a fixed mindset, whereas in the East, they have more of a predisposition for a growth mindset, and that makes a massive difference to the way in which people learn. Generally, if a kid is doing badly in school, in the West, a common response is, this kid is thick, this is just not smart, and they can't do it, right? Whereas in the East, the most common response is we need to change the approach or we need the kid to work harder or we need the kid to work differently or go to a different school or get a different teacher but there is a solution we just need to find the solution because they don't believe that it's something inherent to the kid that they're not able to do this kind of learning and it turns out basically that they're right in that assumption these dimensions are not discrete absolute categories in fact they'll become quite ironic by the end and they all bleed into one another quite a bit but there's your top level outline for the episode so to start we're going to return to something that we previewed last episode, how language encodes and reflects cognitive differences measured in psychological studies. Dr. Nisbet and his colleagues share their observations, findings, and conclusions in the following clips. Objects are at the center of Westerners' thoughts. So, in Western languages, there is a clear difference between singular and plural nouns. But there is no such clear distinction in Eastern languages. In English, articles are used to specify the apple. But in Chinese, you pay attention to the context to determine what was meant in terms of quantity and identity. Peng Kaiping, professor of psychology at UC Berkeley. Chinese don't say eat one particular orange. They don't say that. In English, you have to say eat this apple or apple a day. In the English language, you have to use that. In the Chinese, you don't have to because 
because you have to pay attention to the context. It's the habits of your thoughts, so you don't need to emphasize that specific quantity of objects. You're supposed to know. In English language, they want to be very clear and specific. Different brain operations are typically undertaken when Easterners and Westerners see objects in a picture. Denise Park. Professor of Psychology at Urbana-Champaign. So the brain, when it sees a picture, has to interpret all those forms and shapes and curves. And what we see is that when an Asian brain sees a picture, it looks at the picture as a whole. The area in the brain that pays attention to individual objects doesn't activate so much. Whereas for an American, when they look at the same picture, their brain actually focuses on individual objects, and the part of their brain that understands what an individual object is. Is what will activate more. While Easterners see the picture as a whole, Westerners see objects separately. Some of this difference is evident in the vocabularies mothers use to their children. Western mothers tend to use more nouns, while Eastern mothers typically use more verbs. Many years ago, a group of Harvard linguistics find that in English language, there are too many norms. They call the norm bias. And some people look at how kids in the Western societies or English language culture environments how they talk. They find that they use a lot of norms as well. Nisbet has this famous example when he goes to supermarket and he finds American mothers teach this American baby, "What is this? This apple? What is that? That's orange. It's all about the norm." And what's interesting is that Trila Tadev, who is a linguistics from Michigan, she went to China look at how the Chinese mothers talk. To their own kids, they find that there are lots of、uh, verbs like sit, eat, run, do things. It's very much about actions. Why did Western languages develop with a noun focus and Eastern languages with a verb focus? Let's take the example of a person drinking tea. When asking whether more tea is wanted, there is a clear difference in terms used. Westerners typically ask "more tea" with an emphasis on the noun "tea." An Easterner, however, might typically say "drink more," focusing on the verb "drink." The verb "drink" expresses the operation between people and tea. Easterners typically think of the interactions between individual people or objects, so they tend to use more verbs. On the other hand, Westerners may focus on the people and tea. As separate objects, so the noun "t" is used in their suggestions. So Westerners use nouns to express individualness, and Easterners use verbs as an expression of interactions. In other words, the West typically sees the world with nouns, and the East sees it with verbs. Since the focus is on relationship and interaction, Easterners must pay attention to the environment, context, and any dynamics occurring. Whereas Westerners typically focus only on the central object and its fixed attributes, irrespective of context or environment. But just this base level of attention increases the detail that one can derive from a movie scene, like catching background Easter eggs, environmental or emotional cues, and other details. And such focus on dynamic interaction. And context is going to diffuse the fundamental attribution error significantly. Easterners typically think the cause and effects are complex. William Maddox, professor of organizational behavior at INSED. 
But when I was in Japan, I was reading newspaper articles. Sometimes people would get hit by a train and be killed. And these newspaper articles would very often finish with how many people were delayed, how many minutes they were delayed, how many trains were delayed or canceled because of this accident. In the United States, you would never see this information. It would just be too bad, a tragic incident, someone was killed, and that's it. And the Japanese journalists focused on all of these indirect effects, people delayed, trains delayed. Inchiol Choi, professor of psychology at Seoul National University. So I'm going to just read these subtitles for you. In explaining behavior, people live in the context of many objects, and their behaviors are explained with many things. For Westerners, people are individuals with less connection to their surrounding context. What is inside them is enough to explain how they behave. Such different points of view for people explain many issues like this. Westerners think of a cause for an object as residing inside. Ancient Western thought supposed that the cause of atoms' movement was their property and weight. Richard Nisbet, professor of psychology, University of Michigan. In Aristotle's physics, the behavior of objects is completely explained by the properties of the object. So Aristotle says you drop a stone into water and the stone sinks because the stone has the property of gravity. But there's this problem, if you put a piece of wood in the water, the wood floats. Why is that? Well, because the wood has the property of levity. And of course, we understand that that's just completely wrong. I mean, objects don't have the property of gravity. Gravity is a relationship between one object and another. While Westerners think that objects' properties control their behavior, Easterners imagine that those behaviors are the result of their surroundings. When Westerners think a person is kind, the cause is the kindness of the person. Western psychology is mistaken in that if they see a person behaving in a particular way, they see the person behaving in a way that seems to be kind, they say, oh, well, the person's very kind. Or if it seems to be rude, the person is very rude. They tend not to look at the context. And you can show that Westerners make big mistakes because they're assuming something that's wrong, that the person has a disposition or a personality trait that corresponds to the behavior that they've seen. So they generalize too much from it because they're just paying attention. They assume that the reason people behave the way they do is because they have certain properties that they carry around with them. To many Easterners, however, people can be kind and rude at the same time. A person's behaviors are decided and determined depending on the behavior of others. In the following experiment, participants are shown two images, one at a time. First, of several people in a room with a central figure in the foreground. And in that first image, everyone is smiling. The researcher points to the central figure and asks, is this person happy? Across the board, people answer yes. However, in the second image, only the central figure is smiling while everyone around him frowns. Here, Westerners and Easterners give opposite answers. This is a happy person. The people around him look happy too. The background people in the second picture look unhappy. So, can the person with the smile on his face be happy? Takahiko Masuda, professor of psychology, University of Alberta. Uh, North Americans, in general, are likely to focus only on the center of the scene, which means the center person. And then even though the background has been changed, like an angry background, sad background, and a happy background, they do not care so much about that. Which means that they are nicely produced a consistent evaluation to us the same type of facial expressions. 
Japanese are strongly influenced by the changes in the background facial expressions, which means that if you are presented with happy background, the happy center person seen as a much more happier than the case that they are presented with the sad background or neutral background. While the documentary explains this as a focus on context, I also think it's worth mentioning a secondary, related but different, cultural distinction between appearances, facial expression, and emotion. In the West, we're no stranger to the polite courtesies of laughing at a boss's unfunny joke, faking surprise at a party you saw coming all along, or pretending to delight in a gift that you don't actually care for at all. But by and large, these are exceptions to the rule. And ironically, if an actor performs one of these familiar scenes, we call their performance good when their lie is slightly imperfect. The feeling of forced or uncomfortable laughing. The failure to act completely surprised. Or a tinge of evident disappointment despite outward smiles and verbal gratitude. This is because Westerners presume truthfulness between your feelings and your face, and that presumes an inability to hide, conceal, or alter those expressions, which is ironic considering that the profession of acting exists. So basically, a default belief that you're rarely supposed to hide your emotions, and that even when you try, you will fail, in whole or in part. However, in the East, there are far more circumstances and societal expectations placed upon your emotional expressions as appropriate or acceptable, and therefore a greater disconnect between seeing someone's face as a fair representation of what they're feeling inside. There are more times when your face is a matter of propriety, saving face, as some might say, than in the West. And so the Easterners coming to a different conclusion, looking at a smiling subject and saying that he isn't happy, isn't insane, but instead they're giving greater weight to context and environment, finding that the contextual consensus of others is a better barometer of his feelings than his own face. And a barometer is perhaps an appropriate example because pressure and temperature are measured in aggregate and not by individual molecules most times. The Western bias is that truth is found in the more elemental, individual, and indivisible, atoms over averages. But measuring the motion of a molecule is less meaningful than the mass measurement for temperature or pressure. There are some things that are better captured or represented by the group than self or individual. Kaylin O'Connor, author of The Misinformation Age and professor of logic at UC Irvine. I think there's something that's often missing from our education about information literacy, and it's the social aspect of knowledge. And as a philosopher, I kind of blame philosophers for this, because going back to Descartes, there's this idea that if we want to understand knowledge, we have to understand the individual reasoner, how one person looks around them in the world, has all these perceptions of things, reasons about it in this very very good way and then comes to true beliefs. And that's what people have studied for hundreds of years when they think about knowledge. More recently, it's become clear that that's just not how human knowledge works. Instead, it is this social beast. And so I think colleges ought to be teaching students about that and helping them use that understanding to then cast a little light on their own knowledge-making processes. In what ways am I vulnerable to all these social ticks and biases? In what ways am I trusting things online? that I shouldn't trust because they were shared by a friend or looked like they were from a source who I like. So we should be educating students about these kinds of social knowledge factors. In earlier episodes, we've talked about the emperor's new clothes or the Dunning-Kruger effect. 
There seemed to be a direct correlation between incompetence and an overweening sense of self-confidence. Now, anybody who's ever gone to school, worked a job, or known any other people knows this phenomenon. There's that guy or lady who's cocky and yet has no idea what they're doing. And it's infuriating. But here in Dunning's lab, it wasn't just an annoyance. It was a repeatable finding, and it happened every time. Bottom performers thought they were at least above average. Dunning and Kruger published their findings in a paper called Unskilled and Unaware of It. And their conclusion was this. When someone asks, so how do you think you did, you're drawing on the same skill set to answer that question that you used to answer the questions on the test. That is, the lack of skill means not only are you going to make a lot of mistakes, but it also means you're not going to be able to catch mistakes, yours or anybody else's. You're going to think often that what you're saying is absolutely reasonable. This is the double curse. It's not that you're ignorant and also happen to be overconfident. You're ignorant and it makes you overconfident. On the other hand, students who scored well, who really were in the higher percentiles, they tended to guess that they scored a little worse than they actually did. They weren't mistaken about themselves. They knew themselves pretty well. They simply misjudged other people, thinking, they're probably as smart as I am. And the result was pervasive. That's because other people can see when we're doing the Dunning-Kruger dance, but we can't. Which makes you think, why doesn't anybody say anything? The real sadness for me is that often people are going to suffer for their mistakes, but they're never going to know it because if a person is a jerk in the office, what happens is all the parties they aren't invited to, all the wonderful social interactions they just don't get to experience. And it's likely that they don't notice the absence of this. So you don't know you're incompetent. You can't figure it out on your own. And the world is treating you by being silent. Well, how do you improve yourself under those conditions? As Socrates warned us, the wisest people understand that they know nothing. This suggests that there is some wisdom in relying on reliable external measurements over internal estimation. Going back to the face study, notice that this is a cultural reflex. No one is deeply analyzing or rationalizing their answers before giving them. And if you'd like to see a video of people doing just that, I put a link in the show notes. Incidentally, if you'd like to see the images used in the study or run an experiment yourself, I put those in the show notes too. Okay, so that was just one study, but to back up all the claims, in the clips, there have been countless robustly repeated experiments. I'm not going to cover them all because they're hard to summarize for audio and because I think you might enjoy taking some of these tests yourself to see where you fall along the spectrum of thinking. But I do want to share the influential Michigan fish test. The metaphor of Westerners think in a line, uh, Asians think in a circle, that's a good metaphor, but you're a scientist. I mean, what kind of experiments can you do to prove that sort of thing? Well, to give you an example of one of our favorites, we show people movies of underwater scenes, and there's always a particularly salient object, usually a fish, and we define salience by the fact that uh, one of these fish is larger, brighter, and faster moving than the others. And we show these scenes for 20 seconds, and then we ask people what it is they have seen. And Westerners, the first thing they say is, well, and then they zero in on the central object. They say, I saw what looked like a trout swimming off to the left. It maybe had some pink speckles on its belly. East Asians are much more likely to start out by saying, I saw what looked like a stream. There were rocks on the bottom and some plants. So they start out with a context. All 
altogether, our Japanese subjects in one experiment that we ran remembered 60% more detail about the environment or the background than the American subjects that we tested. And they actually saw 100% more, twice as many, relationships involving inanimate objects as the Americans did. It's as if if it wasn't moving, it wasn't really there for the Americans. The eye movements of Easterners and Westerners are studied as they view a tiger in the jungle. What we find is that the Americans focus in on the most salient object. They spend nearly all their time in just looking at the tiger, for example. And Asians spend much more time looking at the background, and especially looking back and forth between the background and the object, looking back and forth between the jungle and the tiger. So they make more eye movements, and they make more movements between the background and the object. So they see more about the background, and they see more about the relationships between what's in the background and what's in that salient object. The Japanese were able to report 60% more information about the context when we asked them what they had seen than the Americans were, at no cost to what they were able to report about the most salient objects. The Japanese didn't see the object. The Japanese saw the object in context. So at the end of the study, we showed people the objects, some objects they'd seen before, some they had not seen. And if the object was shown in a different context, this threw the Japanese off because the percept is object in context. Again, this is just one of many studies showing how people may perceive things differently even with the same scene before their eyes. Nisbet and his colleagues have additional studies to show East Asian culture tends towards context. Earlier, we noted a correlation between East Asian languages demanding more awareness of context given homophones, and in practical terms, a contextual perspective on a film may allow you to pick up more detail, more world building, more production design and storytelling, more Easter eggs and references. Then placing a focus entirely on the actors in any given scene. Being able to draw out all that detail is sometimes what we call high-context communication. High-context cultures communicate differently from low-context cultures. In a low-context society, uh, while we are communicating, we assume that we have a low level of shared context. What does that mean? It means that we don't have the same reference points or the same body of knowledge or relationships, that we have a low level of shared context. So in a low-context society, we believe that good, effective, professional communication is a communication that's very explicit, that's very simple and very clear. In a low-context society, we're trained that if I want you to understand blue, then I have to say blue, literally. We're trained in a low-context culture that if I give a presentation, I should tell you what I'm going to tell you, and then I should tell you, and then I should tell you what I've told you. Why do I tell you the same thing three times? Because we're focused overall on making sure that the message was passed simply and clearly. In a high-context society, while we're communicating, we assume assume or consider that we have a larger body of shared context, that we have the same reference points, body of knowledge, information. And because we assume all of this shared context, in a high context society, we believe good, effective communication is a communication that's more implicit or layered or nuanced. I'll give you a thick example from China. I was giving a presentation at a conference in China last year, and all the people in the room worked for the same multinational 
international American company. Before I worked with him, the chairman, who was this American from New York City, gave a presentation that went very well, and then he left. Afterwards, when I was working with the group, we were talking about this, and I had the Chinese human resource director raise his hand, and he said, "You know, Aaron, this concept is very interesting to me because the whole time the chairman was talking, I was trying to make sure that I was listening with all of my senses, that I was picking up all of the levels of meaning that he might be trying to pass." Now that I look at this, I'm asking myself the question: Is it possible that there was no meaning beyond the simple words that he was saying? And I thought to myself that that chairman would have been really surprised to think that anyone was trying to understand his message beyond the first degree. Imagine watching a movie without any meaning underneath, where its message is simply stated clearly, repeated over and over again, so that it's completely impossible to miss. <laughs> I may have just described many mainstream movie-going experiences. It's a way to tell a story and a way to perceive things. It is misplaced to criticize the failure to conform or misunderstand an audience that manages to see more meaning, complexity, and nuance in the unsaid. A high-context culture means that communication can be non-verbal, implied, relational, and polychronic. At a base level, much is already shared, so the emphasis is on developing deeper, lasting, important relationships. Meaning is conveyed through empathy, facial expressions, gestures, silences, pauses, and inaction. What you don't do can speak louder than words. Being polychronic means that one is more flexible with time, and time is spent on multiple topics and tasks simultaneously. Punctuality and goals are secondary to relationship and experience, even at a An appointment, time is spent building rapport on entertainment, on interests, and on work. In a low-context culture, everything is explicit, direct, verbal, and monochronic. There's a greater opportunity for diversity and difference, but accordingly, a higher risk of misunderstanding or mistake, which is addressed by emphasizing clarity, repetition, directness, and straightforward simplicity. Interaction is bounded by rules and regulations that are more strictly adhered to. Only one thing is done at a time, promptly and without distraction. Work is work, and things are com. Compartmentalized and categorized, and we can apply these outlooks to film. A low-context film relies heavily on genre conventions to signal clearly what it is in blatant and obvious terms. The film's genre, story, setting, and characters will be clear, straightforward, and simple. You will be pounded over the head with its themes, stated outright, and reinforced repeatedly. Rarely would a low-context film stray from the formula, following established rules and regs, to deliver exactly what was promised and predicted, hitting the expected beats. Following familiar arcs, nailing a precise runtime without exception, themes, genre, and meaning are all crystal clear and unambiguous. If there is any level of meaning beyond the superficial first level, a high-context film would rely a lot on underlying shared context. For example, understanding how the real world works scientifically or psychologically, or having a complete comprehension of a mythos so as to appreciate references and remixing. A high-context film. Takes you to a deeper level of knowledge, nuance, relationships, and intimacy with those already familiar elements and characters. Instead of things being driven by explicit exposition or dialogue, so much of the whole 
is left unsaid, implied, and comes from everything else. The dialogue itself is sparse, but densely packed with layers and layers of meaning, implication, history, callbacks, annotations, suggestions, etc. The way I'd word this in earlier episodes is that a line, a scene, or a shot does a lot of work. It accomplishes multiple things on many levels simultaneously, like a polychronic approach to time. A lot of work that goes unseen or misunderstood is when the viewer operates on only a low-context level of perception. Criticisms surrounding time often reveal this mode of thought. A low-context critic proposes perhaps whether the film should have been shorter, more linear, more direct, fewer tangents and subplots and diversions, and more expectations met, more clarity, and more orthodox canon. Such a critic argues that the beats and the developments fail to follow the prescribed formulas, and are upset that the film isn't intended for uniform, single-use, common consumption. Sure, it's fine if you watch on repeat, but it's meant to make the same impact for everyone across the board because, quote, these characters are for everyone, end quote. Instead, in a high-context polychronic film, time is not spent formulaically, thus violating ordinary runtimes, act structure, or having prolonged prologues. It is as generous as it needs to be without strict punctuality or promptness because every scene and interaction is laden with alternative goals. Perhaps even every minute. There are two great podcasts out there that have broken down or are breaking down BVS by the minute. Check the links in the show notes. Not just a neat visual or just exposition or just dialogue and characterization, but typically all of that at once with everything else as well. Symbolism, themes, world building, and references, all in play while also delivering genre staples like action, visual effects, and franchise building too. And this densely layered, multi-dimensional approach means that the film is meant to be watched multiple times, to be interacted with different ways, to come away with a dynamic and differing experience on each occasion. Films meant to be debated and discussed, not just nodded along to your pre-existing schema. As deep dives into our relationships with these characters, they are much more an experiential exploration into empathy than the mechanical conveyance of thematic information. It's a little like the American cultural convention of using how are you as a greeting or phatic expression. Things quickly become uncomfortable if anyone actually answers with sincerity and depth rather than the rote replies expected. The quote-unquote right answer is I'm fine, you. Following the formula, the critic wants to see the mechanical story beats of great power, great responsibility, refusing the call, suffering the consequences, and then accepting the call. And they get upset if Man of Steel undermines all of that by revealing Clark's altruistic heroism from his very first scene on Earth, instead of the teenage refuse-suffer-accept formula, which makes even heroes in their 40s act juvenile. Man of Steel just honestly and sincerely answers the question like a grown-up what it's like to be a hero, suffer those difficulties, and continue anyways. Answering adult questions of career commitment, what it is to persist as a parent, doctor, teacher, hero, or indeed any profession, how it's hard to be who you are, and not the adolescent identity challenge of who am I? Breaking that norm makes low-context critics uncomfortable. These films don't just engage in the ritual repetition of their external trappings. Man of Steel and BVS take us into the minds of our heroes, experiencing their memories, dreams, and nightmares almost entirely without commentary, narration, or any explicit explanation of our experience. A high-context approach to storytelling demands more of its audience, in terms of interpretation, empathy, and understanding, to extract the 
meaning and values. Having high context means a greater reliance on implication and common domain knowledge. In a low-context film, the morality of the character needs to be spelled out in explicit slogans that play well as soundbites in the trailer. In a high-context film, filmmakers expect you to have some basic domain knowledge about the world and how it works. If they show Clark going to a church in Kansas, it's fair to take all the basic Judeo-Christian values implied as applicable. Unless we're shown something to the contrary or otherwise, it seems sensible to apply American norms and values to Clark without having to be spoon-fed his philosophy on force, violence, and self-defense. A low-context critic needs a scene of Superman saying that killing is bad, but force is okay. They need the heightened artificial formulaic dilemma and an absolute prohibition on otherwise justifiable lethal force when that doesn't come from any mainstream culture on Earth. These slogans and sayings work in simplistic examples, but if you dig deep, increase the complexity and nuance, it almost always falls apart, which requires low-context approaches to remain at the simple surface level just to stay afloat. Such stories have to be hostile to investigation, scrutiny, analysis, or review. Their defenders must aggressively hand-wave any challenge, skepticism, doubt, or question. But a high-context text story invites, nay requires, such engagement to be fully felt. A high-context creator finds that the complexity of reality is more than enough of a dilemma without adding an unrealistic melodramatic restraint or an explicitly verbalized code. If a cultural context already exists, the creator need not say anything about the lore to warrant its inclusion. We don't need exposition to explain the Bat-Signal, Batmobile, or the Bat-Cave. We understand it as a reference that resides in the richness of the mythos. As we mentioned last episode, one example of low-context communication is in the Kryptonian culture. Almost everything they say is direct, straightforward, completely certain, and completely sincere. They're all extremely blunt, honest, and without pretense. Almost everything is an incontrovertible statement to the speaker. And I used to attribute only Zod as lacking guile and as somewhat arrogant, but if you account for culture, it's apparent that all the Kryptonians communicate this way. They all say what they feel, they say it explicitly, and there's almost never anything underneath it. Zod is exactly as he seems. By comparison, consider how humanity will say things. Maybe. Isn't that a good thing? I don't know if it's possible. Say what you're saying, General. Consider Lex Luthor, almost the exact opposite of Zod. Half the time, no one knows what he's saying or what he means, because his motives are hidden in word games, obscure references, and overt displays of a public persona. Lex embodies the disconnect between face and feeling, between words and meaning. In a low-context culture, the emphasis on clarity creates a tendency to conflate words with reality. If a character says something, then it's true. If a character doesn't say something, then it must not be true. Even though it's a logical fallacy, it becomes the tendency for omissions in dialogue to constitute evidence in a low-context critique. So unless Superman explicitly says he cares about bystanders, some will assume he doesn't care, rather than take his entire story, the context, or nonverbal cues, like his expression, into consideration. They won't read into a furrowed brow, or a career of caring, or just use common sense, and just dismiss silence as indifference. This is one of the reasons that Superman's lack of lines is repeatedly raised as a point of criticism, to show that the filmmakers didn't care about Superman, that Superman was underserved, and so on. They would prefer something more like the heavy-handed affirmations in Justice League. Well, I believe in truth, but I'm also a big fan of justice. 
To avoid any chance of misinterpretation or ambiguity, the seemingly obvious to the contextually sensitive must be stated outright to those who are almost unaware of context. The phone cam footage opening is meant to serve a similar purpose, and my rants about that are long, merciless, and ugly. <laughs> we don't have the time, and I'd rather focus on admiration than anger. See, attack we say is philosopher's man says. What does that mean? <laughs> if you kept your mouth shut, we might have thought you were clever. Well, Superman's critics deride him as mute, but silence can be interpreted in a range of different ways. Chris Voss is a former FBI hostage negotiator. You learn and then you begin to understand if you have a disagreement, how the other person might be looking at it in really broad characteristics. Like for example, just silence, dead silence. Each one of those three types looks at silence very differently. As an assertive, if you're quiet, I think that means you want to hear more from me. And so I talk, where if you're an analyst and you're quiet, you just want to think. And I could completely misinterpret that, you know, and, and you're happy when I go silent because you're like, thank God he shut up so I can think. Well, the only time the accommodator goes silent is when they're mad. So if we're talking and you go silent on me, I'm afraid you're mad at me. When there's an impasse, when there's a difference, when you're having a problem, it's usually a result of the three types. In Western thought, there is a greater emphasis on words and eloquence, while silence is often dismissed, misunderstood, ignored, or impossible. As an attorney, I've had countless clients get into trouble because their first instinct was to speak. They assumed that their words would save them and that explanation was everything. Dr. Nisbet, followed by Dr. Hazel Marcus. Westerners are more likely to think verbally, and Easterners are more likely to think non-verbally or geometrically or visually. And this was uh, discovered by a very clever Korean graduate student at Stanford who said to her advisor one day, you know, I'm getting tired of these Western professors always telling me that I've got to speak up in class, that if I don't do that, it shows a lack of understanding of the material and that I would understand better if I pitched in and made comments and asked questions. And she said, I'm sorry, that's just not the way I think. I don't think in that kind of verbal, linear way. I think in a much broader way, and talking actually interferes with my process of thinking. And then she proceeded to prove it by asking people to solve anagrams, either while they were talking about what their solutions were, talking out loud, or remaining silent. It made absolutely no difference to her American subjects whether they were talking or not, but it impaired the performance of her Asian subjects and of her Asian American subjects to have to speak while they were thinking. And she argues, along the lines that we do, that if you think in a relatively linear way and you're paying attention to central objects and you're paying attention to a fewer total number of things when you're thinking, words are pretty well adapted to that. They're adequate to that task. But if you're thinking about a much wider range of events and objects, words are just going to get you confused because you're thinking much more broadly and you can get into trouble if you're trying to say everything in words. There is a small experiment to test the correlation between language and thought. Simple puzzles are given to Easterners and Westerners. Sometimes they are told to describe their actions, and other times they are told to work silently. Now this task was very easy for the Americans with European background who are used to thinking that talking and thinking go together. If you are thinking, then you should know how to say it. So their performance was slightly better in the condition in which they were talking out loud than when they were silent. For the students with East Asian background, this was completely reversed such that their performance was very good when they were silent. When they were required to say what they were doing, verbalize their mental 
processes. They did very poorly on this task. And so the talking interfered with their performance. For the Americans, talking actually enhanced their performance somewhat. And this is a clear, very carefully controlled study that shows that talking and thinking don't always go together for people who have been exposed to these other ideas about what is good thinking. It doesn't often include talking. In the West, it is believed that it is the mind that finds truth, not nature. Like in Western college, they always emphasize seminars, emphasizing debates. Why? Because it's coming from the Greek traditions. Because the more you fight with each other, the more you debate with each other, the more likely you'll find the truth. That's precisely what Aristotle said. Truth is a property of the discourse. That's what he said. What it means is that uh, truth is not in the book. Truth is not in your head. Truth is not in his head. Truth is in between. So we fight, we debate, we argue, then we discover where the truth is. From ancient times in the West, observation and analysis have developed for finding truths. This process makes it necessary for observers to present their findings and to allow others to search for fallacies and errors. Thus, the process of exchanging ideas and holding free discussion is required in order to find truth. In the West, Oratory has traditionally been highly regarded. This is why eloquence and rhetoric have developed into virtual art forms. Quite to the contrary, people who are eloquent are often not trusted in the East. Korean proverbs like, the empty carriage makes a lot of noise. This idea that when you hear a lot of talking often means there's not so much thinking going on. Or in Japanese context, people say, the mouth is the source of misfortune. So this idea that talking is not always thought to be a good thing. And being the person who knows is often the person who's quiet and doesn't have a lot to say. In the East, a negative image of eloquence has long existed. Easterners traditionally believe that language is a means for delivering meaning, so language can't be for some other purpose. You may be familiar with additional sayings. Lao Tzu said, Those who don't know speak. Those who speak don't know. Zongzi said, If you understand something, then forget the words. And Confucius said, Language can't hold every meaning in the world. Most of Lao Tzu's suggestions are actually very simple. We ought to make more time for stillness. To the mind that is still, Lao Tzu said, the whole universe surrenders. We need to let go of our schedules, worries and complex thoughts for a while and simply experience the world. We spend so much time rushing from one place to the next in life, but Lao Tzu reminds us, nature does not hurry, yet everything is accomplished. Consider the lilies of the field, O you of little faith. When we're still and patient, we also need to be open. The usefulness of a pot comes from its emptiness, Lao Tzu said. Empty yourself of everything, let your mind become still. If we're too busy, too preoccupied with anxiety or ambition, we will miss a thousand moments of human experience that are our natural inheritance. Our ego is often in the way of our true self, which must be found by being receptive to the outside world rather than focusing on some critical, too ambitious internal image. When I let go of who I am, Lao Tzu wrote, I become what I might be. Professor Karen Carr summarizes. The basic truth about anything are simply not things we can express in language. They are ineffable, to use a technical term. So any attempt to try to say anything definitive about them will inevitably fail. Any teacher out there knows the amazing array of answers that can come from the same verbal prompt. Anyone who understands concept art can see how an infinite possibilities can spring from one suggestion. 
Over the course of my careers, I've found discrete codification can only take you so far. The biggest and the most exciting CompSci breakthroughs now reside in the black box of AI, processes that we don't directly understand or know or capture in discrete code. Law isn't purely practiced as written, but in the black box of human decision. The judge, jury, opposing counsel, or client. Even how you interact with the clerks can impact the outcome more than the codebook sometimes. Cultural wisdom often comes as a counterintuitive correction to the default inclination. Paper published in Cognitive Science by Ara Noren Zion, Scott Atran, Jason Faulkner, and Mark Schaller called Memory and Mystery, the Cultural Selection of Minimally Counterintuitive Narratives. They write, quote, We hypothesize that narratives combining mostly intuitive concepts with a minority of counterintuitive ones enjoy a memory advantage and as a result achieve cultural success. In Indeed, we propose that it may be a recipe for cultural success. Those that are minimally counterintuitive may be especially memorable and therefore more likely to achieve cultural stability. All right, it's like going to the movie, right? The movie is not just an accurate depiction of real life. That would be so boring. Right, but it's also not just so bonkers that it's just complete surrealism. Right. Which, granted, can be great, but it's that middle ground. That's where you're going to find the really successful films, right? It's where most everything is pretty mundane, but there's some element that's out of whack. This has been observed to be true outside the arena of formal psychology and in the realm of fashion, design, and taste. So, novelty or familiarity? As is often the case, the answer lies somewhere in between, on the midway point of some optimal U-shaped curve plotting the new and the known. The noted industrial designer Raymond Louis sensed this optimum in what he termed the Maya stage for most advanced yet acceptable. This was the moment in a product design cycle when, Louis argued, resistance to the unfamiliar reaches the threshold of a shock zone and resistance to buying sets in. We like the new as long as it reminds us in some way of the old. But Louis felt that his sensitivity to the familiarities of his consumers connected to a deeper layer of psychology. His Maya theory, most advanced yet acceptable, spoke to the tension between people's interest in being surprised and feeling comforted. The consumer is influenced in his choice of styling by two opposing factors. A, attraction to the new, and B, resistance to the unfamiliar, he wrote. When resistance to the unfamiliar reaches the threshold of a shock zone and resistance to buying sets in, the design in question has reached its Maya stage, most advanced yet acceptable. The central insight of Maya is that people actually prefer complexity up to the point that they stop understanding something. Many of today's museum goers don't just stare at the water lilies. They enjoy strange and abstract art that gives them a feeling or a jolt of meaning. TV viewers don't just watch reruns, they like complex mysteries with narrative puzzles that come to completion. Theatergoers love familiar revivals, but the most influential Broadway smash hits are ones like Hamilton that tell a familiar story in an ingeniously new way. The power of fluency, after all, is strongest when it emerges from its opposite, a challenging period of disfluency to create an aha moment. Raymond Lowy's Maya theory accounted for success at the frontiers of taste. Perhaps genius is the name we give to that limit, and the greatest work comes from creators who seek something beyond acceptance. 
who push forward the frontier. <laughs> There's an entire mini-series in the vault on this, but let's get back to wisdom and culture. So in the West, where the emphasis is on individuality and autonomy, where you listen to yourself and you do what you want. So the higher, counterintuitive wisdom comes in the form of guided democracy, listening to others, such as long-standing principles like inalienable rights or even your opposition. Everyone goes on their own individual hero's journey, having to learn all the lessons of the past themselves, and listening to others allows them to collect, compare, and composite those lessons into a greater, wiser whole. So for the West, the default is self, and wisdom is others. This can mean an emphasis on speech and debate, talking things out and through. But in the East, everyone is already attuned to context, societal expectations, and collective propriety. You respect your elders and societal duties, and so you rely upon respect and follow their wisdom without having to forge your own from scratch. And so for the East, the default is others, and wisdom is self. And this means shutting down and out all of those external voices, expectations, and presuppositions to listen to the internal, quiet, still, and silent. This means an emphasis on contemplation and meditation, thinking and listening for insight. This is why in Eastern culture, the expression, the mind should be clear, is used a lot. The clearer mind is able to become one with objects. Finding truth in Eastern thought is accomplished not through discussion, but through meditation, making one's mind clear and still. In American context, if you say, make your mind clear or still as water, many people, for example, if you take any martial arts, you know this idea that the mind should be clear and still. That's the best way for concentration and meditative state. Often for Americans, that seems like the mind is blank. And that's very terrifying to think that the mind would be blank. So all the time they're talking and thinking, having a conversation with themselves. And so it's hard for Americans often to do the other task of making their mind still. To, it's hard to be in a receptive state. So they have trouble with those kinds of tasks. And as I've said repeatedly, remember that we're all human, and so these ranges affect us all. You will see argument in the parliament of Taiwan, and you will see meditation sweeping Silicon Valley. The point is, there is more than one way to think about how many lines you give a character. Longtime listeners will know that this is one of the aspects of BVS that I've defended all along. We've talked about the benefits of abstraction. Less explicit dialogue is more interactive and creates a broader range of interpretation and expression. Once a thing is said, it's simply canonized, explicit, and often uninteresting. The audience just shuts off its brain and accepts it as gospel. A richer experience, I think, comes from taking the time to think through what went unsaid, what was meant, knowledge and motives, etc. Instead Instead of simply relying upon dialogue. And this is part of the reason that I resist excluded lines or quote-unquote word of God interpretations from the filmmakers because meaning and truth should be consistent and coherent independent of authority. Some say J.K. Rowling's subsequent commentary is problematic in such a way. I don't think J.K. Rowling gets to decide what's canon and what's not anymore because this is crazy. If we jump to Pulp Fiction, what's the most wackadoo suggestion that people have said, I know what's in the suitcase, it's this. Oh, wow. I don't have a really good answer for that because unfortunately the whole idea why I didn't tell people what was in the suitcase is so they would come up with it on their own but nobody wants to do that they just want to know what I think <laughs>
and I don't give a damn what I think. I mm -hmm. want to know what other people think. Mm -hmm. I've had a million people ask me what's in the suitcase, yeah. but I don't think I've had five people tell me what they think is in the suitcase. <laughs> <laughs> but again, I find myself on too many tangents. So let's get back to it. Superman is supposed to represent an ideal, but the more you codify that into language, the more one is simply saying sound bites that sound good, but almost say nothing. Like, I believe in love, or we don't trade lives, or clear lines that simplify into particular partisanship. Using less language leaves the ideal open to interpretation. It's broad and encompassing, instead of just an explicit exclusionary preference. The actual implementation of Superman into the real world would be an incredibly complex thing, and so overall, the less said, the better. Certainly, we've seen how in partisan politics that anything one side says can be twisted and turned by the other side. Therefore, there is cause to be skeptical of words. I promise you that a prosecutor can indict anything that Superman tries to say, no matter how meaningful you might think it. When being viewed in bad faith or accused, sometimes silence is the answer. Sometimes silence is the way to wisdom. Be still and know. Easy for me to say. <laughs> The bottom line is that being a man of few words can reflect wisdom and character, whereas someone prone to speeches could be otherwise. If you think through the parodies of the Paragon, it's interesting how many of them are driven by ego and limelight, who demand respect and attention, who are all too image conscious and have a way with words. Why might that be a subconscious critique of the Superman? If you think about what is the life goal of an independent person, a person from an independent sort of culture or an individualistic culture, that life goal is to be self-reliant, capable of doing things on one's own, smart and discerning. And all of that is fed by the notion that you need to present yourself as being overly smart, almost impossibly capable. So almost a Superman kind of view of the self. The educational system in the U.S. and parents' responses to children in the U.S. encourage children to inflate themselves, to brag, to present themselves in a positive way, to say, I'm the greatest, I'm smart and I'm capable and I can do it. Westerners score high on this scale and they tend to agree with statements like, I am very confident of my judgments, or I can always tell when someone is lying to me, or many people think that I am exceptional. Okay? Western individualists are more likely to agree with statements like that. In Eastern society, people who behave modestly are considered to be good people. We all care about looking good to other people. We all want to present ourselves positively. But what that means can change from culture to culture. So in an Eastern culture, presenting yourself positively means I can be trusted to be a good friend or a good person for my group, helping people. That's presenting yourself positively. But in a Western culture, it's quite different. Presenting yourself positively means being smart and capable. I can do it. And so the Western way of being desirable and positive is to brag about my own personal qualities and how capable I am. But the Eastern way of being desirable is not to brag. It's to be modest and doing what is expected. I've already said too much. <laughs> okay, so let's move on from objects and context to our next topic. So, the insufficiency of language has a greater emphasis in the East in part because of the difference between analysis and holism, or the analytical and the holistic. 
The Western perspective places an emphasis on analysis, which is elemental, atomic, abstracted, absolute, and argumentative, driven by logic and afraid of contradiction, whereas Eastern thinking is holistic, which encompasses the entire picture, change, context, and relationship, embodied in actual experience, situations, and circumstances, particular and practical reality, completely comfortable with paradoxes. I think analytic thinking, you start with the object, you pay attention to the properties of the object, could be a person, a thing or a person. You categorize the object on the basis of its properties. You bring rules about the categories at a somewhat more abstract level to bear on how the object will behave given the rules that apply to the categories that it fits. Categorizing things brings great advantage. It helps knowledge build up over time. From this stems scientific development. The word science, which originates from this concept, means separate. This separation means a lot to Westerners. I get the other side. I get it, but something about calling a hot dog a sandwich just, like, makes my blood curl. I don't know what it is. If you start redefining sandwich to any filling in any wrapping, you're talking about dumplings, you're talking about bao buns, you're talking about Indian doses. If you say a hot dog is a sandwich, then everything is sandwich. Because after all, what are we if not meat wrapped in fibers? For Westerners, the world is a collection of individual objects. For Easterners, on the other hand, the world is a big field where everything is related and interconnected. Westerners see the world as individually expressed nouns, and Easterners see the world as verbs that express the interactions between the objects. We won't go into the whole historical argument for these differences, but simply talk about the endpoint observations. Essentially, Western thought seeks to divide and categorize, break up things into their smallest fundamental elements to understand the truth. By contrast, Eastern thought believes that everything is interrelated, and that it's impossible to understand the pieces without considering the whole picture. And given that knowing the whole picture is often impossible, there is a greater comfort and reconciliation with the unknown known and the unknowable. The mysterious and not knowing is natural compared to something to be overcome or opposed. What happened maybe 30-ish or 40-ish years ago was that people started noticing that even though you know a lot about every single part, it's sometimes not enough. There's this whole field of inquiry called chaos theory and complexity theory, which is all about how even if you have a very simple rule or a very simple set of parts, you can end up with something incredibly complicated and unpredictable happening as a result. And that's a very Eastern thing to realize. In a way, this Chinese or Eastern way of thinking about things is right, that the world is complex and that it means that that things are unpredictable, and it means that if you understand the parts, it doesn't mean that you understand the whole. And they were right. It just turns out that this Western approach of breaking things down into individual pieces and understanding each individual piece actually has a lot of mileage to it, even though it's not fully right. Nothing was ever simple. Holistic thought also includes what Kai Ping calls dialectical reasoning, which means a million things. He contrasts it with logic. Westerners find logic easier to follow when the set of propositions lead to some conclusion that they don't like. Westerners say, well, that's probably correct anyway. East Asians are more readily thrown off by how they feel about the conclusion of a logical argument. But instead of logic, what East Asians have is dialectical reasoning, by which Kaiping means a million things. One is, instead of the Western habit of 
being confronted with two propositions which seem to be in conflict with one another, throwing away one in preference to the other, much more likely to try and split the difference, to find what might be true about both of the propositions. In reasoning about problems, there's a greater tendency to take into account many perspectives on things, different people's perspectives. There's no tendency toward hyperlogic. There's a concept in Japan of hyperlogicalness, which they consider juvenile. To strip some situation or problem of its details and abstract it up to some level where you can operate it on pure logic. They know you can do that and they think it's basically a bad idea. And I think it's, a, frankly, a Western intellectual foible to hyperlogicize. And there tends to be lower certainty for an East Asian reasoning about a particular problem than you would find for a Westerner. Now, a lot of that sounds to me like wisdom. It's wiser to assume that there may be truth to two apparently opposing propositions than to just throw one away. It's wiser to take many perspectives than fewer perspectives. It's wiser to think that situations are not static, that they're likely to change, which is much more characteristic of the dialectical approach to the world. There's a lot to unpack there, but he goes on to summarize his empirical studies on wisdom. And it basically amounts to Easterners starting out wiser, but growing no wiser, whereas Westerners start out unwise, but grow wiser over time, primarily by way of making mistakes. And by the way, I didn't explain why it is that Americans are getting wiser with age, whereas Japanese aren't. They're getting wiser because they're making mistakes. They're getting into social conflicts, they're handling them badly, and they learn from those. So they are inducing the rules that Japanese get from for free. And around now, I have to renew my disclaimers that these are not qualitative or racial analysis. There are advantages and disadvantages to both ways of thinking, and they aren't exclusive to the cultures that exhibit them on average. The Chinese philosopher Mozi, for example, pursued formal logic and contradiction despite it not developing traction in the East, and Western thinkers have tried to combat dualism and logic as well. Well, you know I love my logic. It's a stepwise way of working, clear, method mathematical, dispassionate, and seemingly applicable to everything. But that arises from a binary bias, computation coming as ones and zeros, and argumentation where it's right or wrong, win or lose. And yet, as I alluded to before, the higher levels of these disciplines start to unravel these certainties. Quantum computing relies upon probability fields instead of absolute certainty. Math seems to be an incomplete expression of reality, and any seasoned attorney learns to argue both sides, or even counts successfully without argument. In a culture that prioritizes harmony over argument, you'll see a natural de-emphasis on legal representation. The ratio of lawyers to engineers is 42 times higher in the United States compared to Japan. When the rules are the rules, you more readily go to court to enforce them rather than accommodate, negotiate, tolerate, or innovate alternative means of resolution or solution. So basically, America likes lawyers, and Japan doesn't like lawyers quite as much. And part of the reason for this can be seen in the way in which the law works and the way in which legal thinking works. So in the West, it's very much about justice as something that has to be satisfied, and somebody has to be in the right, and somebody has to be in the wrong. Whereas in the East, there's much more of a sense of finding a compromise and doing something that reaches in the middle. In fact, this is also something related a lot to thinking about things in terms of their context. And in the West, we have more of a sense of laws that 
should apply to everything, no matter what the context is. But in the East, there's more of a sense of they should apply depending on what the context is. Each individual case should be taken on its own merits. Rules are necessarily an abstraction of reality, simplification stripped of specifics, so that they can be broadly applied. But that action is often the issue itself. The Dalai Lama says, learn the rules well so you can break them properly. In a 2011 MTV interview, a certain filmmaker reflecting on his experience with Watchmen as it applied to Superman said, you've got to know the rules before you can break them. <laughs> there is an issue with believing that everything can be abstracted out as an issue of logic to be followed to a T. If you've ever been on the opposite side of an argument and your opponent is calling out your hypocrisy and inconsistency in some regard, you've experienced that personally. It is easy to strip away nuance or context, to create opposition position, dualism, or contradiction, if abstraction is automatically accepted. You can, of course, see it from your own perspective and why these things can be reconciled or distinguished from their abstraction. But when discourse is decontextualized, you may never get that opportunity to make your case or have it heard. Easterners tend to be less interested with formal logic than Westerners, as there is a strong distrust towards the idea of decontextualization, more specifically accepting the validity of an argument based on its assumed compelling underlying abstract structure alone is not enough to prove its legitimacy, it needs to be connected to its content and context. In a study conducted by Richard Nisbet, the author of The Geography of Thought and three other cognitive psychologists, a series of three deductive arguments were put to the test of Koreans and Americans, who had to evaluate its convincing the first argument is meaningful and its conclusion plausible. The second one is meaningful but its conclusion implausible. And the third one is so abstract that it has no real meaning whatsoever. But all three are perfectly logically valid. Both Koreans and Americans were more likely to rate syllogism with plausible conclusions as valid, as expected. However, Koreans were more influenced by plausibility than Americans. The difference between the two groups would seem to be that Americans are simply more in the habit of applying logical rules to ordinary events than Koreans, and are therefore more capable of ignoring the plausibility of the conclusions or the general context in which the purely logical argument is being constructed in. It turns out that Asians actually prefer paradox or contradiction compared to Americans. When professors Peng and Richard Nisbet asked students of the University of Michigan and the University of Beijing which proverbs they like more, the Chinese students had a clear preference for the proverbs with a contradiction in it. Americans preferred those without a contradiction. The reasons for this example of Eastern preferences lies in aspects previously mentioned such as the belief in constant change of the nature of reality, which leads to constant anomalies, and the dialectical holistic view that opposing arguments are true. Evidence indicates that Easterners are not concerned with contradiction in the same way that Westerners are. When asked to justify their choices, they seem to move to a compromise, middle way stance, instead of referring to a dominating principle. On the contrary, Americans' contradiction phobia may sometimes cause them to become way more extreme and polarized in their judgment and interventions under conditions in which the evidence indicates they should become less extreme. Westerners tend to start out with the proposition that their precepts are true, especially the more abstract they are. If the truth is absolute and contained within the precept, then the mathematical logic applies. A and not A are mutually exclusive, and equivalence is a contradiction. Psychologist Richard Nisbet works at the University of Michigan, where for years he studied how people like you and I perceive the world around us, how we determine what's real and what's not, and what kind of errors we make. We come from a long tradition 
notion handed down from the Greeks that a proposition is either true or false. And if there is a contradiction, one of those propositions must be wrong. Nisbet studies reasoning and errors in reasoning. He says this need we have to find the right or the wrong of whatever we're looking at, that's just a cultural habit baked into the logic system handed down to us from the Greeks. At the base of Western reasoning are some principles like A is A and not A, and both A and not A can't be the case. So either black bears are dangerous or they're not dangerous. They can't be both dangerous and not dangerous at the same time, because that's a contradiction, and we're contradiction-phobic. Right. But Nisbet says this isn't the only way to look at the world. For instance, in Chinese philosophy and in much of East Asian cultures today. The assumption is that if there's contradiction, both may be right, or both may be wrong, and each side should move toward the middle. Do you think that this kind of tradition we have in Western cultures of seeing the world in this zero-sum way, do you think that has costs? Well, I do. I think we are inclined to reject what other people say too quickly because we've decided that what they're saying contradicts something that we believe, and so we simply reject it. And maybe it actually doesn't contradict it, or maybe it's describing another aspect of reality. However, in Eastern thinking, there is skepticism even towards the evaluation, assessment, or assignment of precepts. One does not even accept the precept of A to begin with, much less that not A is a contradiction once it's been divorced from the real-world complexity and experience. We've illustrated this before with the parable of the lost horse. The Chinese farmer is unwilling to declare any given situation as good or bad because it keeps changing with the context and circumstance. In one frame, his lost horse is a bad thing, the loss of property. But in another frame, it results in him keeping his son safe from conscription into war. There is a traditional Chinese parable that happens to illustrate the comfort with differing premises. Taoism is deeply intertwined with other branches of thought, like Confucianism and Buddhism. There is a story about the three great Asian spiritual leaders, Lao Tzu, Confucius and Buddha. All were meant to have tasted vinegar. Confucius found it sour, much like he found the world full of degenerate people. And Buddha found it bitter, much like he found the world to be full of suffering. But Lao Tzu found the world sweet. This is telling, because Lao Tzu's philosophy tends to look at the apparent discord in the world and see an underlying harmony guided by something called the Tao. Many Easterners will comfortably bounce between different branches of thought without any anxiety about logical consistency, instead adopting what is expedient for the reality of the situation. And accordingly, it's actually used and benefits everyday people without extensive degrees in philosophy. Much of Western philosophy's obsession with abstraction and consistency is what mires it in metaphysics and makes philosophy seem like an intellectual exercise inapplicable to everyday life. One way to illustrate this divide is with a scolding parent saying, if all your friends jumped off a bridge, would you do it too? This kind of logic begs the question and demands the answer no, but a more accurate answer is depends. And incidentally, that is most times the most correct answer to any legal inquiry. <laughs> 
it depends because devoid of context and used as an abstraction of logic, the parent is simply saying that peer pressure shouldn't dictate your decisions. But it's reasonable to consider a probable or possible context. Because when else would all your friends be jumping off a bridge? If they don't normally jump off bridges and they're all doing it and they're all reasonable, then there's probably a pretty good reason to jump. Perhaps the bridge is collapsing or on fire. In any case, you can see the defect of abstraction and absolutes. The parent defectively arguing that peer pressure in some regards is peer pressure in all regards. How many times have you been on the receiving end of an argument that unfairly positions your precepts as absolutes like that? Now, in defense of logic, one might say that it is the articulation of positions by the parties that's the problem. That it is their logical fallacies that failed and not logic itself. But the entire reason reason that we need to raise, label, and name fallacies is because they are frequent. They are the habit and inclination of Western argument. And that is exactly the issue. By contrast, Eastern thinking can be said to be dialectic. There is no one definition of dialectical reasoning, but a commonly used one is the process of going through thesis, antithesis, and synthesis. So although there are two propositions seemingly in tension or opposition, instead of pitting them against each other, an abstract Extracting them into purer and more perfect absolute conflict, you instead dig deeply into each position to inquire of the other, to draw out the differences, details, nuance, and so on. Then synthesize the two into a new proposition encompassing the insights of both ideas. In our trite jump-off-the-bridge example, the parent and child might come to an accord that they shouldn't bend to all peer pressure, but that their peers often have insights as well that are reasonable to adopt. Neither the child nor the parent is right or wrong, but a harmonious whole is had instead. We can apply some of this to how comic book continuity is sometimes handled in the area of retcons. A retcon, or retroactive continuity, is generally a change to our general perception of the past, or a prior continuity based on a present story. Many times retcons are clumsy and contradictory, selecting simply to overwrite or ignore the past as if it hadn't occurred. But the best retcons are often dialectic, reconciling two propositions to give us new insight into the character or the story, keeping both the past and the present true simultaneously. For example, thesis, Hal Jordan is a hero, but antithesis, Hal Jordan also destroyed Coast City. In a clumsy retcon, you can simply erase the embarrassing past as if it never happened. But in a dialectical approach, both propositions remain true with added nuance and detail. Bringing in the idea of parallax allows both. With the Western approach, especially in subjective matters of taste, there's often no attempt at harmony, but simply the imposition of one's position. Once in a place of power and prominence, rewriting and revolution over compromise and complexity. Historically, DC has just rewritten over its past, forcing its fans into camps over which canon to adopt or support. Golden Age versus Silver Age, pre-crisis versus post-crisis, New 52 versus Rebirth, and so on. Yet more recently, efforts have been made to reconcile it all as one thing, a more dialectic approach. If you're stuck in the absolutes of an analytical mode, you can see why there are intense objections 
objections to Man of Steel and Batman v Superman. Superman doesn't kill. Batman doesn't kill. These are abstractions of the actual truth, held as precepts which come into contradiction with the films from this analytical perspective. The logical equation gets written out. If Superman doesn't kill, and he kills in Man of Steel, then he's not Superman in Man of Steel. Hashtag not my Superman. Of course, once you engage in the dialogue of the dialectic, it's clear that they've abstracted too far, and that there is no real contradiction. Superman doesn't kill generally, but he has and does in these past circumstances. Superman doesn't kill generally in these films, but he has and does in these circumstances. These situations and circumstances are sufficiently similar to suggest a consistency and continuity of character, and so on. Countless criticisms come from dualistic conflict between abstracted attributes. If a movie is alleged to have underperformed, then it isn't good. If a movie wasn't critically received, then it wasn't good. If Superman doesn't smile often or the humor wasn't overt, then it wasn't good, and so on and so forth. From a dialectical perspective, you can always find more nuance, exceptions, contradictions, and paradoxes that route the otherwise simple logical equation. Our actual experience of life seems to differ greatly from something that can be completely captured by absolute precepts, which is something addressed by existentialism. I'd like to talk about the work of the early-mid-19th century Danish philosopher Søren Kierkegaard, who is usually credited as being the grandfather of the entire existentialist movement. It's good to know up front that Kierkegaard frequently employs what's sometimes known as indirect communication, which consists of devices such as sarcasm, irony, pseudonyms, metaphors, evocative stories, etc. This tends to make reading Kierkegaard somewhat challenging, since his real point is often the exact opposite of what he seems to be saying. But the rationale for this is that he wants to draw the reader toward having an actual experience, which of course demands a much deeper, much more thoughtful level of engagement with his texts and ideas. One good place to start is with his distinction between two kinds of truth, objective truth and subjective truth. For Kierkegaard, objective truth has to do with truth the way we normally think of it. For instance, truth is a product of empirical observation, such as in the case of the natural sciences. Or, truth is governed by abstract disciplines like those of formal logic and mathematics. One thing to notice about objective truths is how much they're governed by consensus. For instance, we commonly regard E equals MC squared as being true first because many expert scientists have come to a consensus that they are indeed true assertions, and then because they were consequently propagated across the social terrain to form a part of our larger cultural consensus about what's true. However, some kinds of truth are much more individual and personal than that. There are some things in life that we just have to experience firsthand before they can appear to us as truths at all. To paraphrase Louis Armstrong a little, if you actually have to ask what jazz is, then you won't understand the answer. In other words, for the truth of jazz to appear to us, we have to have at least some experiential reference point in our lives to relate to it. Without that, jazz will only seem like incomprehensible nonsense to us, not a worthwhile musical truth. For Kierkegaard, most of life's really important truths are like that. They're subjective truths rather than objective truths. In other words, a product of individual experience rather than consensus based upon empirical observation and or abstract logic. Basically, objective truth is a great paradigm for doing chemistry or physics, but it's a very poor paradigm for fathoming the human soul or for cultivating our capacity for wisdom. 
Let's look at a concrete example of the difference between objective and subjective truth, our mortality. The question is, how do we really know we're going to die? Well, from the perspective of objective truth, we know we're going to die because we empirically observe that all human beings eventually die and that we ourselves are human beings. Logically, then, what applies to all human beings would also apply to us. The objective truth of our mortality is consequently grounded in a combination of empirical observation and logical inference. However, the subjective truth of our mortality is something very different, something much more personal and much more palpable. For mortality to appear to us as a subjective truth, we actually have to experience how death runs through every moment of our lives, like an unsettling undercurrent drawing us ever closer to the distant horizon, toward our ultimate undoing and dissolution. We have to feel, at least now and then, that cold and very intimate impress of finality upon our souls, to feel ourselves both giving birth and dying as we move from moment to moment. But to experience the truth of our mortality that way is much more personally challenging than simply accepting it as an objective truth. To experience mortality as a subjective truth means being willing to expand the outer perimeter of what death even means to us, and simultaneously, what life means to us. For Kierkegaard, the truth of religious life works much the same way. As we've raised before, to remove the baggage related to religion, simply replace it with a prescribed maximal ideal to live by if you must. For example, in Man of Steel, you don't need to think about Superman's crisis of faith as religious, but instead as the challenge to live up to the ideals that he aspires to. You can intellectually argue that you should give your life for humanity. If I can save humanity, shouldn't I? But actually living out that ideal, experiencing it and putting it into practice and into motion is something else entirely. Faith in God isn't a matter of accumulating some combination of correct empirical observations and or logical arguments because the truth of religious faith is a subjective affair, something like appreciating jazz or feeling the reality of our mortality or falling in love. In other words, something we have to experience firsthand for it to count as a truth at all. This may seem like an obvious point, but actually its implications can quickly sort out several vexing conundrums that arise today. Day. For instance, from this perspective, most of the disputes that commonly arise between a secular scientific worldview and its religious counterpart are really rooted in differences in people's experiential reference points, and consequently, differences in their personal perceptions about how truth works and which truth should matter. Which is why these kinds of emotionally charged squabbles almost never change anyone's mind about anything. It's because people are trying to resolve by debate an issue that's really rooted in experience. This parallels Eastern thinking about the role and prominence of logic in life. That reason and logic are good and necessary things, but that the highest wisdom and the deepest truths are personal, experiential, embodied, and particular. And that's what distinguishes Superman the character from the caricature, the complex from the cartoon. A real Superman would have to wrestle with the specifics, embody his ideals, experience the challenges, and make them into his personal creeds to commit to. It's a continual process of wrestling with, working through, and winning and losing that no one can shortcut, unless you're a cartoon. The cartoon Superman simply insists upon these things as certainties, without being tested, tried, or pushed to the brink. The whole world simply suspends his position by way of fictional fiat and the suspension of disbelief. 
Kierkegaard contrasts these two outlooks in the context of Christianity using the night of faith versus just a religious zealot. A further implication is that religious faith isn't actually a matter of knowing anything or of proving or disproving that God exists, since knowing and the certainty that goes along with it are elements of the objective view of truth, which is not really what religious faith is about in the first place. Like all of the rest of life's subjective truths, faith in God is what takes over when all the world's objective evidence has reached its outermost boundary. And the reality is that our objective knowledge of things always has its limitations. Consequently, religious faith is actually in an intimate relation with doubt and uncertainty. For Kierkegaard, this is part of what differentiates what he calls a knight of faith from a mere religious zealot or fanatic. A religious zealot claims to know that God exists as if it were a kind of object of truth, which is tantamount to not having religious faith in any genuine sense at all. In contrast, a knight of faith believes that God exists and throws the entire weight of his or her existence in that direction, against the backdrop of all of the reasons to doubt it. Consequently, for Kierkegaard, doubt is not a diminishment of religious faith, but it's actually integral to its value and its power as a form of subjective truth, which is part of the reason and why religious life requires passion and commitment, a kind of passionate inwardness, as he says, rather than just a smug, comfortable sense of superiority and just being right. Another implication here is that because Christian faith is really about a kind of interior, subjective, experiential truth, it's not actually visible from the outside. For instance, one can look, sound, and behave exactly like a stereotypical Christian and still be missing the essential inner experiential core of relating to God. This means by the end of the journey, the Superman of substance and the empty Superman shell will both look the same outwardly, maybe even say the same sweet slogans, share the same success rate, and be difficult to distinguish from afar. But one got there in a real way grounded in experience, which gives substance to his actions, while the other is just an echo of external expectations and societal scripts. And this is perhaps why we're admonished not to judge. And this mirrors Eastern skepticism towards the outward or apparent form, the superficial face, juvenile abstractions, instead of the underlying substance of the internal being and of the particular and specific experience. It would be just as juvenile to deny God based on the problem of evil as it would be to demand faith because of Pascal's wager. More often than not, these are logically consistent word games that fail to reflect reality. Even if philosophical thought experiments can make us all disembodied Boltzmann brains or the products of a simulation this isn't how we actually live, and our adoption of rationality is often itself a post-hoc rationalization. In the West, the failure to capture these aspects of life, experience, and the fragility of reason gave rise to existentialism. And this whole strategy seemed extremely reasonable at the time. And ironically, later philosophers would lament that that was exactly what was wrong with the strategy, that it seemed reasonable at the time. But we'll get to that. Nietzsche looks back on this moment in history, and he sees the choices that the philosophers made at the founding of the Enlightenment as an absolutely giant missed opportunity. Because, he says, hypothetically, this was a moment when philosophers could have realized that one of the biggest problems with those faith-based views of the world centered around the idea of religious certainty was certainty. 
What these thinkers did, Nietzsche says, is throw out the religious certainty that caused them so many problems in the past and just change the criteria for what makes something certain. Rationality is now our path to certainty. They replaced one dogma with another dogma. So what happened was, with each progressive, classical, rationalist philosopher doing their work, we seem to be coming to terms with how everything in the universe fit neatly into these rational categories we came up with. We were finally understanding the truth after all those years, and rationality was getting us there. With each progressive scientific experiment that was undeniably bringing us an understanding of the natural world that improved the lives of people, look, at this point, how could any reasonable person say that the process of science wasn't accessing something of the truth about reality? But then hundreds of years go by, and as the goals of the Enlightenment are played out, problems start to arise. And this dynamic starts to produce philosophers that want to understand the limitations of classical rational thought. One of the first major ones that gives rise to this trend was Kierkegaard. Kierkegaard has a quote, and I'm paraphrasing here, but he says, here are all these philosophers and scientists of his time that understand the deepest levels of reality and existence, and here he is, and he can't even understand Abraham. What he's saying is, science and rationality during his time is supposedly producing some of the most comprehensive understanding of reality that we've ever had. But when it comes to certain aspects of what it means to be a human being, rationality just cannot help you there. It's not a useful tool in that context. So many things about your life on an everyday level. Human existence is filled with paradox if you look for it. There are times in our lives, and he gives examples from the life of Abraham, there are times when continuing to live in the face of that paradox requires irrationality. Kierkegaard thinks this irrationality is an important part of our existence, just as important as rationality, it turns out. And if you ever tried to swear off irrationality completely and make purely rational choices all the time, you'd be left in a state of total paralysis, he says. Maybe a good metaphor of this is to try to think about what it would be like to have a book that told you how to be a human being and 300 pages, you know, a field manual for life. Better yet, picture having a book that's supposed to tell you how to raise a child, right? You open it up, and it's filled with these math equations and syllogisms, geometric breakdowns of how to design the nursery. Look, for anyone that's ever actually raised a child before, you know how tremendously oversimplified something like that would have to be. Now, the intent of the author may have been to arrive at a new level of certainty about parenting. You know, let, let's dare to think for ourselves for once. Remove ourselves from the tutelage of the parenting dogma of the past. But the best intentions in the world don't change the fact that there's something missing there. There is something about being a human being that's lost when we're using purely rational analysis to try to explain it. More than that, no matter how much scientific progress we are making, the tools we use to catalog that scientific data, the means of analysis, aren't even remotely similar to the way we experience reality as human beings. Perfect example to describe this phenomenon, used in the work of Professor Lloyd Kramer, he says, take time, for example. There's this thing about the universe that we call time. We want to use rational analysis analysis to understand it better. So we measure it, record it, and study it through the use of tools of rational analysis that we call clocks. Now for a clock, seconds are uniform. There's 60 seconds in a minute, 60 minutes in an hour, so on and so forth. Time, when viewed purely through the lens of rational analysis, looks like that. But what is our actual human experience of time? Well, sometimes time flies. Sometimes a few seconds of something agonizing can feel like an hour to us. The point is, when it comes to understanding the universe, clocks might be the ultimate tool. But when it comes to understanding certain aspects of our human experience of the universe, the tool of rational analysis just cannot tell the full story. So Kierkegaard
Kierkegaard becomes a symbol for a fracture in this idea, you know, this idea that starts to seem like a pretty extreme idea that rationality is going to be able to provide us with an exhaustive understanding of everything. So at this point in the story, rationality itself starts to come under fire. And some of these critiques are actually reworkings of older critiques of reason. For example, Edmund Burke spoke several times about how when it comes to the progression of human thought, but more specifically when it comes to how we should structure our societies, you never want to fully commit your strategy to rational analysis. And he gives many reasons why you wouldn't want to do that, but one of the big ones he would say is, look, when you decide that you're going to determine which thoughts are legitimate or not based on purely rational analysis, what you see when you actually put that into practice in the world is that you can basically find a way to rationalize anything. Look no further than your own personal life for proof of this fact. How many times have you reasoned to a conclusion about something and still been wrong? Maybe you know somebody that made a big mistake in their life, and after the fact they thought about what happened, and they found a million ways to rationalize it to themselves and others, and it all makes perfect sense to everyone why they did it. But nonetheless, it's obvious to everyone that they've still made a huge mistake. Of course, on average, the elevation of rationalization is the Western way. While this strain of thought may have been the exception to the rule of reason in the West, it is the emphasis in the East. W.H. Sheldon once said, Westerners want to see the reality. Easterners want to be the reality. One example of this is that Western art puts an emphasis on reproducing the personal perspective. It is common to paint with the subject before you or as you would see it. However, in Eastern art, the tendency is to observe the subject and internalize it. For example, enjoy nature until it is embodied in you and experienced, and then go off to paint the subject based on that, without it before you, and going principally on what you've internalized. In Western paintings, the painters paint objects right in front of them. Painters visit places where objects are located and paint them. In Eastern painting, painters put emphasis on the window of their mind. They picture objects in their mind first. Then, when they return home, they retrieve the images in their mind and paint in their room. The famous Chinese painter and poet Su Dongpo taught that in order to paint bamboo, one must put bamboo in one's mind. In this oneness, the distinction between front and back, or right and left, is meaningless. Because what I see becomes one with me. The filmmakers have said that the latter was their approach to Man of Steel. Instead of directly adapting anything before them as a direct reproduction, they absorbed the entire mythos and primarily produced the synthesis of their personal experience, rather than something that others would have acknowledged as an accurate reproduction. And if this example of embodiment seems too esoteric, consider the common saying, just like riding a bike. When something is easy to remember after a long time not doing it, you say, it's like riding a bike. But this kind of memory really does stand apart from other kinds. Even when people suffer memory loss, memories of how to do things often survive. So why is riding a bike just like riding a bike. Motor memories get stored differently than lots of other memories, making them harder to lose. But like other memories, there's still a lot we don't know. Motor memory is the ability to repeat motions and remember motor skills. It's part of a category of memories called implicit memories, which are generally things you learn less by thinking and more by doing. And when you learn things without putting in specific effort to learn them, weird things can happen. And some of these cases have interesting twists. For example, 
example, one patient spent years volunteering to shelve books at his library after a motorcycle accident caused him to lose his hippocampus, preventing him from making new memories. But he still learned the Dewey Decimal System, even though he couldn't tell you how he learned it. Accordingly, there is greater emphasis on rote repetition to build in embodied experience, as well as a more consistent cultural connection between body and mind. A monk might attain enlightenment through martial arts, for example. For these student monks, Kung Fu is not just a martial art, it's a spiritual practice. Today, its perfection is a mark of faith. Knowing through your body or practice is acknowledged more in the East, even if you can't articulate it into words or consciously think it. Think of all the things you do in your life that are effectively on autopilot, automatically unconsciously, as habit or practice. If you ever actually tried to rationally think through your every action as a conscious choice and decision, your life would grind completely to a halt, totally paralyzed and sorely inefficient at even the most basic tasks. The following Radiolab clip describes somebody afflicted with the loss of the sense and knowledge of self in space. You have, of course, a sense of smell and of touch and of taste. This sixth sense also has a name. It's sometimes called proprioception. Proprioception. Proprioception is the unconscious sense by which the position of one's limbs, the posture of one's body, is automatically monitored. On his own, over the 12 years, he had figured out how to walk again and how to grasp a cup again. And he explained that he did this by carefully breaking down and then reassembling every single move he made. It started this way. Um, I was laying in bed one day in hospital and I wanted to sit up and it just wouldn't happen. And then laying there in frustration, I just thought the whole process through and I broke it down into quite simple small movements. And I lay flat, I checked where absolutely everything was before I started, and then I then started with the head and folded and tucked my chin onto my chest as if to start the first part of the curl. Then I moved my arms slightly forward and I started to tighten some muscles in my tummy and around my back. And then I started to curl myself to sit in an upright position. And when I got there, I was so damned euphoric, I nearly fell out of bed. <laughs> Ian has studied movement in a way no one in history has ever studied before. No ballet dancer, no professor of neurology has ever had to study movement the way Ian does every day. Because every day, every move that Ian makes, he has to consciously direct. It's as though Ian were two people, a puppeteer and a puppet. His mind is directing and his body is obeying. And the strings of Ian's puppet, interestingly, are his eyes. My eyes. I control all my movement with my sight. Because he doesn't have this feedback information coming from his limbs back to his brain. The proprioceptive feedback. Because that's missing. Unless he looks directly at the limb he wants to move, he can't move it. Um, if I look away from my hand, I lose all connection with it. Well, what happens if it's dark or if the lights are out? Well, you know, it's, he can't afford darkness. I fall over. He has not turned out the lights in the night in the last decades. Wow. To stay in the world, in motion, he must focus, always focus. But the idea of breaking down every move you make into sub-moves and sub-sub-moves and then relearning everything, it's exhausting. Very, very mentally tiring. Because it takes such total concentration. 
This gentleman will never take for granted the automatic and wordless knowledge that we rely upon every day. Putting an emphasis on embodied experience is acknowledging the role of these things outside our executive function. Yet, as the most vocal part, choice, thought, and consciousness is the seat of Western identity. But Easterners say that that's only a story that we tell ourselves, pretending as if those thoughts are consistent, coherent, and completely free will. Instead, the mind is often denigrated as chattering away with countless repetitive and useless thoughts, which is exactly what one observes if you actually monitor your thoughts through science. Our internal dialogue is nothing like our heavily edited post hoc narrative retellings. Having observed this tendency and in order to acclimate the mind to paradox, adapt it to contradiction and uncertainty, and quell or distract its constant churning, paradoxical parables were put into practice. How do we explain the unexplainable? This question has inspired numerous myths religious practices, and scientific inquiries. But Zen Buddhists practicing throughout China asked a different question. Why do we need an explanation? For these monks, blindly seeking answers was a vice to overcome, and learning to accept the mysteries of existence was the true path to enlightenment. But fighting the urge to explain the unexplainable can be difficult. So, to help practice living with these mysteries, the meditating monks used a collection of roughly 1,700 bewildering and ambiguous philosophical thought experiments called koans. Koans were intentionally incomprehensible. They were surprising, surreal, and frequently contradicted themselves. On the surface, they contained a proverb about the Zen Buddhist monastic code, such as living without physical or mental attachments, avoiding binary thinking, and realizing one's true nature. But by framing those lessons as illogical anecdotes, they became tests to help practicing monks learn to live with ambiguity and paradox. By puzzling through these confusing cases, meditating monks could both internalize and practice Buddhist teachings. Hopefully, they would let go of the search for one true answer and trigger a spiritual breakthrough. The neuroscience backs up the practice of finding insight outside the analytical mode of thought. Dr. John Cunios studies the science of insight. How you go about solving a puzzle depends on the state of your brain or the state of your mind, your mindset, when you get the puzzle. And specifically what we found is that when you're going to solve an upcoming puzzle analytically by working it out in a deliberate fashion, your attention is focused outwardly, in this case on the screen on which we flashed the puzzle. There's more activity in the visual areas of the brain. You're focusing on it. When you're going to solve an upcoming problem with an insight, there's reduced visual activity. You're focusing your attention inwardly. And then other areas of the brain that are involved in processing ideas, those become more active. And there's a really interesting area of the brain that becomes more active. It's called the interior cingulate. What it seems to be doing in this case is that it monitors the rest of the brain for activity. For example, in certain situations, you kind of have mental blinders on. You don't consider other options. That's what happens when the interior cingulate is not very active. It's narrowing the scope of your thought. But when the interior cingulate fires up, it expands the scope of your thought and allows you to switch your attention to some crazy long shot hypothesis about what's going on. It takes the blinders off. If that's all fired up, you will be open to all kinds of crazy long shot ideas which are particularly creative, which may be correct. And those pop into awareness all of a sudden as aha moments. 
And here are just two examples of these Eastern Thon experiments. Since these are intentionally unexplainable, it would be misguided to try and decipher these stories ourselves. But like the monks before us, we can puzzle over them together and investigate just how resistant they are to simple explanations. Consider this koan illustrating the practice of no attachment. Two monks, Tanzen and Ekido, are traveling together down a muddy road. Ahead, they see an attractive traveler unable to cross the muddy path. Tanzen politely offers his help, carrying the traveler on his back across the street and placing her down without a word. Ekido was shocked. According to monastic law, monks were not supposed to go near women, let alone touch a beautiful stranger. After miles of walking, Ekido could no longer restrain himself. How could you carry that woman? Tanzen smiled. I left the traveler there. Are you still carrying her? Like all koans, this story has numerous interpretations, but one popular reading suggests that, despite never having physically carried the traveler, Ekido broke monastic law by mentally clinging to the woman. This type of conflict, examining the gray area between the letter of the law and the spirit of the law, was common in koans. In addition to exploring ambiguity, koans often ridiculed characters claiming total understanding of the world around them. One such example, finds three monks debating a temple flag rippling in the wind. The first monk refers to the flag as a moving banner, while the second monk insists that they are not seeing the flag move, but rather the wind blowing. They argue back and forth, until finally a third monk intervenes. It is not the flag moving, nor the wind blowing, but rather the movement of your minds. One interpretation of this koan, each monk's commitment to his own answer blinds him to the other's insight, and in doing so, defies an essential Buddhist ideal, abolishing binary thinking. The third monk identifies their conflict as a perceptual one. Both arguing monks fail to see the larger picture. Of course, all these interpretations only hint at how to wrestle with these koans. Neither the wisdom from practicing monks before us, nor the supposedly wise characters in these stories can resolve them for you. That's because the purpose of these koans isn't reaching a simple solution. It's the very act of struggling with these paradoxical puzzles which challenge our desire for resolution and our understanding of understanding itself. You may remember in our Illuminated Text episode the same goals of disorientation and ambiguity, active engagement, and so on. In the impressionistic characterization in the Bible, acting as a simulator for the uncertainty of our actual lives. And this is a practice backed by modern research. Chris Robichaux, a lecturer at Harvard's Kennedy School, incorporates storytelling into his pedagogy. For him, narrative is at the heart of how we learn. I think fiction is very important. We've seen some studies that suggest that people who tend to read fiction more often have deeper empathetic connections to other perspectives. We're natural storytellers. We've been consuming stories and playing games since we were very, very little. And it's unfortunate that at times we forget how much learning comes out of that as we get older. One way Chris integrates storytelling into teaching philosophy and ethics is through something he calls moral simulation. Moral simulations can be any kind of game or exercise where people have to consider tricky moral situations and reach a decision about how to behave in that situation. These simulations are designed to be a bit like role-playing games. With an emphasis on experience over abstraction, accordingly and historically, Easterners aren't preoccupied by the problem of evil. Eastern thought is basically a minor footnote on this issue, who only deal with it on an ancillary basis. And in the softer form,
form of the just world fallacy. Basically, why should we do or be good if the world is unjust and we go unrewarded? Heaven and Earth Are Not Human, The Problem of Evil in Classic Chinese Philosophy by Franklin Perkins explores and expands on that footnote, but it's not for beginners. But if you've understood a lot of the basics that we've already covered, the underlying cultural and cognitive differences that we've discussed so far, you can probably synthesize why the problem of evil is essentially absent from Eastern thought. Of course, the precepts of the propositions are challenged from the get-go. The concept of a singular supreme god isn't the same in Eastern culture, but so is the mere nature of life. The problem of evil posits suffering as an issue, but Eastern thought doesn't place the abstract ideal of life without suffering as a conceivable truth, but instead meditates upon the actual experience of life, which always contains suffering. As often summarized, but perhaps misunderstood, quote-unquote, life is suffering. The arbitrary and abstract nature of the problem of evil becomes apparent as it's interrogated by dialectical reasoning. Why should anyone care about this largely inapplicable abstraction to practical life? Why is this artificially reduced into a dilemma, excluding countless other arbitrary propositions about reality or its underlying structure which resolve or dilute this issue? Who are we to judge good or evil? What does it mean against a timescale of eternity or the infinite? Who are we to speak about God or the nature of reality? Isn't it probable that these are unknowable mysteries? Isn't it trite to try to capture the incomprehensible in three lines? And these questions challenge the place of logic, the precepts as abstract, the limited perspective of the question, the lack of change or dynamism in the propositions. Once good, always good. They don't assume either of the underlying precepts as true to begin with. They have skepticism between what words describe and what reality is. Is, and finally, a cultural comfort with embracing the mysterious, unknowable, and unknown simply as that. In fact, in the Jewish tradition, which predates the Epicurean invention of the problem, there is no problem of evil primarily for that last reason. The book of Job is basically a meditation on the issue and the just world problem. At the end, there is an attempt to box God in with a logical conundrum to answer. If Job was wrong, what did he do? And if he was innocent, won't God acquit him? And despite millennia of theological gyrations, philosophical arguments, and logical counterproofs developed since Epicurus created the debate, the in-text response is simply a refusal to answer that some things are mysteries and beyond us. Totally unsatisfactory to the logistician, and exactly why Western philosophers continued to debate it for thousands of years on. But it's a practical answer for actual life and how we live it. The great Swiss psychologist Carl Jung said, quote, The greatest and most important problems of life are all fundamentally insoluble. They can never be solved, but only outgrown. End quote. You reach a maturity that is able to let go and let be, without certainty or solutions. And this isn't simply mysticism, but psychological science. The ability to tolerate ambiguity, paradox, uncertainty, and live without the answers, without closure, is a necessary human trait. There are a lot of good things to say about closure. That being said, seeking closure has a dark side too. And if you're not careful, chasing after it could set you up for some pretty bad decisions. What psychologists call need for closure, or need for cognitive closure. It's a trait that exists on a sliding scale, meaning that some 
some people have a higher NFC and some people have a lower one. Where you fall on this scale can change with the situation, but people do tend to have some kind of fundamental preference. And generally, that preference depends on how comfortable you are with uncertainty. If you have a really low NFC, you probably prefer ambiguity and leaving things unresolved. Meanwhile, if you have a high NFC, you most likely prefer solid, certain answers and quickly tying up loose ends. It can apply to just about anything that involves decision-making. A high NFC is associated with a number of pitfalls, because if your goal is to feel closure as fast as possible, that could lead to mistakes. For example, multiple studies have found that a high NFC can cause someone to make rash decisions, especially when they already have prior knowledge about a subject. This idea can also come into play when you're picking a college, choosing where to work, or deciding how to vote on political issues. Additionally, having a high NFC can also lead to biases, like one called correspondence bias. This is where you make a generalization about someone based on a specific situation. Like if you met a coworker right after their big performance review, you might assume they're just a fundamentally nervous, stressed out person, which isn't necessarily true. Research does suggest that those with a low NFC tend to be less prone to bias and to make more thoughtful choices and analyses because they're not rushing to get closure. Understanding this trait and where you fall on that NFC spectrum can reveal a lot about how you make decisions. And depending on where you rank, it can help you become more thoughtful, more decisive, or avoid biases. But those aren't the only benefits. Understanding where you and others fall on this scale can help you succeed and avoid conflict too. And maybe you can start to see how these ideas overlap and coalesce. A higher need for closure can be correlated with the need for clarity and certainty, or the Western bias, whereas comfort with ambiguity is the Eastern tendency, and accordingly less susceptible to the correspondence bias, which seems rather similar to the fundamental attribution error that we've discussed already. In any case, to bring this back to BVS, we see exactly this issue with Lex's application of the problem of evil and how Superman's story seems to respond from the Eastern perspective. Lex presents the problem, just as it often is in real life, as an abstraction of absolutes, an either-or proposition wherein its precepts are assumed and its conclusion a binary certainty. As he says, I figured out way back, if God is all-powerful, he cannot be all-good. And if he is all good, then he cannot be all powerful. And neither can you be. But even the harshest critic of Clark, with not a single scrap of sympathy for Superman, can see that this is a dumb dilemma being misapplied to a man. This is the insistence of hyperlogic, at its worst, childish and done in bad faith, intentionally. One could criticize the film for forwarding this in apparent error. Except that, isn't this exactly what we do in discourse? Isn't this exactly how the worst among us behave? Don't we reduce others to ridiculous precepts, to point out hypocrisy, just to justify our judgment all the time? Is it really error for the filmmakers to point out this error by portraying it on film? Of course not. The substance of the dilemma disintegrates under dialectical challenge. Clark isn't God. Clark isn't all-powerful. Clark isn't all-good. If we describe the precepts more accurately, you might say that Superman is more powerful, Superman is mostly good, and Superman is like a lowercase g god. But at that point, 
There is no contradiction or dilemma. There's no reason these things can't coexist simultaneously, even acknowledging Lord Acton's admonishment that absolute power corrupts absolutely, as Superman lacks absolute power, he need not be all bad or make a claim of being all good. It arrives as an obvious post hoc rationalization because Lex does not come to his conclusion in calm contemplation, but by way of answering his father's fists and abominations. Rejection, abuse, pain, and betrayal shapes his reasons and his argument, even in spite of what he knows as fact to the contrary. Lex knows that Clark is human at heart, which is why he can hold it hostage, make it bend to his will, and so on. And yet he still imposes this hyperlogic framework onto facts that don't really fit. As erroneous as this is, remember that this is exactly what happens. Exactly what is being shown and critiqued. How often do we see this in polarized debate? Purely to make the argument. The other is dehumanized, demonized, made deplorable, etc. When we know that more likely than not, they just disagree or differ, and often in degree not in kind. That in reality, we likely agree on most things of actual substance and immediate impact or actual action. Likely, they love their children, they pet their dogs, they call their mothers, they pay their taxes, and so on. But we think we can win, ridicule, and demonize if we successfully show contradiction, all while ignoring all the ones that inhabit ourselves. And if the aim is anything but ego, does demonization work, or just divide? It may feel good to make snide remarks that frame the other side as irrational, inconsistent, and logical. But does that actually enlighten anyone? Is that any better than dialectical dialogue? Well, <laughs> It depends. So note how Clark engages with the bad faith dilemma. He doesn't. This is the guy who argues with editor Perry White, challenges Lois Lane, takes on Bruce Wayne, bases down four-star generals, confronts Congress, and begs the bat to listen. He will engage with those that disagree to say his side of the story. But that's because in all of the above, they disagree in earnest and in good faith. Superman can see that Lex doesn't really care about the problem of evil or its implications as applied to him because the pretenses are entirely in bad faith. And these imperfect precepts aren't the only issue. Lex has completely corrupted the validity of the dilemma by injecting his own evil intentions and duress into the equation. Let's follow each path to its conclusion. If Superman slays Batman and bloodies his hands, well, this is the allegedly evil outcome. Superman may be powerful, but he isn't good, right? Except for the fact that duress is a defense to evil doing in almost all mainstream philosophies. The proverbial gun-to-head scenario strips the actor of the mens rea, the desire, intent, will, or choice to do the deed, and places it on the intentional and willful acts of the hostage-taker. Here, Lex bears the brunt of moral responsibility. Clearly not Clark. And this means that many would tolerate him killing Batman if it were to save Martha. And that says nothing about divinity at all, except that Superman clearly isn't. Now, as a footnote, there are obvious reasons not to advertise Superman's susceptibility to hostage-taking, but you can still get around those with retirement or exile. In the end, disclosure undoes Lex's narrative. 
Okay, so what if Superman lets Martha die? He refuses to trade lives or negotiate with terrorists. Even if Martha must die, let the blood be on Lex's hands. Kant would be proud. This is the allegedly good outcome, according to Lex, right? And yet, is that how it'd be read in the real world? We know that people judge him for putting the world's welfare before Jonathan's from all the criticism that that scene gets. We know that there are some that would say you always select your mother over a known criminal, that it's wrong to let the innocent die and the guilty live. Do we really think that people will be satisfied if Superman says that he remained quote-unquote good, kept his hands clean, because the evil was done by the free will of others? Of course not. We know that many are extremely unsatisfied with that answer. The greatest engagement of Jewish scholars with the problem of evil was in response to the Holocaust, even though it would be easy to categorize that as the product of human free will. The ease of the answer does not ease the issue. Whatever your position on the problem, it is a fact that people still cry out for intervention regardless of free will. And so Lex's allegedly either-or dilemma is defective from the start, and actually an ambiguous mess on either end. Not a clear picture of the divinity he wants to deconstruct. It's clear that he doesn't really care about the outcome, which is why he pulls the ripcord on Doomsday even before he knows which outcome has happened. But I've already discussed that before in the past, I don't need to go over it again. The point is that when somebody presents a false dilemma in bad faith, you don't need to engage. And again, irrespective of your position, the problem of evil has been a thing for thousands of years, right? All that history is a rich opportunity for discussion. And if Clark actually thought that this was sincerely Lex's true issue, they could have had it out on the helipad. But Clark exercises discernment and moves on to someone he might actually convince. Like he says, he's going to try and convince the bat to help. Perhaps he picked that up from Sunday school because Jesus also avoided traps and bad faith dilemmas by silence, sidesteps, or speaking up for the sake of others, using these traps as teaching moments, but not getting mired in the mud with someone uninterested in anything that didn't affirm something that they already believed. So instead of posing it as whether Superman was right or Batman was wrong, how can we harmonize their differing points of view? In the dialectical approach, both may be wrong, both may be right, and both may have something to say about the situation that we can learn from. I'm going to continue on as if this is a high-context conversation and not put qualifications and footnotes and asterisks on everything that I want to say, but we can say that Clark's solution to the problem of Superman is to simply not fall. The problem of Superman as presented by Batman, Lex, Congress, and Keith is that Superman is corruptible, that all that unchecked power will fall. And when it does, that it'll all burn down, that he'll turn tyrant or against their interests, and so on. And Clark's answer to those issues is that he won't. His solution is that he won't fail, he won't fall, and that their fears of apocalypse, annihilation, extermination, tyranny, and more are unfounded. Against the hyperbole of his critics, he sounds reasonable. But he's basically saying that he's infallible. There's no need to stress because he'll never stumble. And that has to strike us as terribly naive and easy to criticize. How could Clark believe that he was beyond failure? But think about it from an actual realistic perspective. How often do we actually anticipate catastrophic failure? How often do we act so sure of what the future holds, blissfully optimistic and certain? How often is that perspective in tune with reality? Perhaps the less I say about marriage and divorce statistics, the better, but you get the point about our ability to estimate outcomes and act accordingly. From a factual standpoint, the fact is that we fail. 
We often don't succeed. We stumble. We fall. We greatly or grossly overestimate our competence or likelihood to succeed, right? But most honeymoons are better with blinders on, right? <laughs> and so, that's where Superman's solution is wrong. Let's look to Batman's solution. So Batman's solution to Superman is annihilation and nihilism, right? If indeed it is the fact that Superman will fall, then the only solution is his destruction. The only solution is that that power not exist at all. We have to destroy it. But I think we can see where Batman is wrong too. That the only response to this issue must be final and absolute. His position stems from the philosophy of what falls is fallen. That stain and sin are forever. That you cannot recover. That there is no redemption. No reconciliation. You can't return to the light. Reascend to the sky. Aha! So what's the synthesis? If the thesis is that Superman is here to help and will not fall, and the antithesis is that Superman will fall and must be destroyed, then let's discard the mutually wrong and keep the mutually correct. It is not the case that Superman is infallible, and it is not the case that he needs to be destroyed. It may both be the case that Superman will fail, but that he is also here to help and that we can have him. The synthesis seems to be the adoption of redemption. The answer is in acknowledging grace and growth to preempt issues with a commitment to community, accountability, and collaboration as safeguards, instead of erasure, and to be ready to recover, redeem, and forgive the inevitable falls. What falls need not remain fallen. We can rebuild. We can do better. To elevate all instead of extinguishing the sun. The synthesis says that we need Superman's hope to give us the freedom to fail so that we can fly. But we also sometimes need Batman's cynicism to act as a sensible safeguard. We need idealism and optimism, but we can't be willfully naive. And this need not be confined only to comic book characters. If you analogize Superman to America as a superpower, then there are those that think that this level of power or prosperity shouldn't even exist, so that the answer is annihilation or undoing. On the other hand, there are those that think that the nation can do no wrong and will never fail. But we can see how the Superman and Batman balance of both is better. And this is something built into the structure of America. David Moss is the author of Democracy, a case study. He's a historian at Harvard University. One of the first debates was, how do you build Congress? The small states wanted a Congress that would represent them one vote per state. But other states, the large states, wanted proportional representation, representation according to the number of voters. But what's particularly interesting about this is that I think often people think about compromise. Meeting in the middle is one form of compromise. It occurs sometimes. But I think even more common, I think, in American history in dealing with the kind of conflict that I see is that you don't meet in the middle. You do sort of the best of both. So what you see is the small states got what they wanted and the large states got what they wanted. So instead of meeting in the middle or splitting the difference, they did both. And this balance between both ideals need not represent a complete abandonment of your principles or a crisis of hypocritical inconsistency. Rather, it's their responsible reconciliation with reality. The next time Superman is called to a public appointment, he had better look. The fact that he starts scanning for threats after the bombing of Capitol Hill is simply a prudent and situational specific precaution, not the abandonment of all privacy or the presumption of innocence. The bombing doesn't turn Clark into Big Brother, but he has to learn from it, so next time he'll be looking. Certainly, as an ideal, we have to believe that Americans are good and law-abiding people, but we don't do open-air presidential motorcades anymore. 
Superman was taught not to stare into the abyss. His focus isn't on evil or perpetrators, but on the good, the needy, and he is ever mindful of what actually matters. Jonathan's advice to him is not the squarely simple and clear kinds of advice you'd see in a low-context communication, but it is an extremely wise anecdote that echoes all of the virtues that we've visited so far. First, it isn't an abstract insistence simply summarized into a solid-sounding slogan. With great power comes great responsibility. That's a stellar soundbite that we love to say, but it's miles away from practical, personal, embodied, or experienced. The awkward story of the storm is the opposite. It seems all over the place, unclear, disquieting, but it's something that Jonathan personally experienced, went through, and carried with him. Second, the story is ambiguous and paradoxical. Jonathan doesn't give us a clear answer whether his actions were right or wrong, whether the situation was good or bad, especially when it would have been so easy to do so. To simply slap a moral on it and say that the hero cake was wrong and so was saving the farm. Look before you leap as the shallow significance to the story. But no, that's not it. He retells it as he lived it. He felt good saving the farm and getting his hero cake, doing what he thought was right. But he also felt bad when the collateral consequences became known, even if he wasn't really accountable for it. This is the Zen koan, the just world question. The book of Job is what I do right if the outcome is wrong. If what I do is good, why do I feel bad? The standard impulse is to avoid that tension and to resolve it as either good or bad. But Jonathan's answer is actually the same as in Job and in the East. To the Western mind, Jonathan's jump to Martha is a non-sequitur, an irrational and illogical tangent that doesn't tackle the topic of the just world dilemma. Why do good if the results are bad? But that is, in fact, the wise reply. Instead of assuming an answerable dilemma, accept it simply as what is. The fact is, in this world, the outcome doesn't always align with intention, innocence, or deserving. The rain falls on the just and the unjust. So if that's the structure of reality, unaffected by inquisition, where then should my focus be? If I pay attention to my attention, being mindful of where I place my thoughts, where should they go? Towards the abyss and the mystery of suffering, blame, and pain? Or to the equally ineffable mystery of love, family, and connection? This is what his mom taught him to do. The world's too big, Mom. Then make it small. Just, um... Focus on my voice. Pretend it's an island out in the ocean. Can you see it? I see it. Then swim towards it, honey. This is what Jonathan reminds him to do. This is what Lois helps him to do. And this is how God answers Job, renewing his focus on the greatness of his God. This is how the East diverts the mind from its wandering. Amishi Ja, professor of neuroscience at the University at Miami. From our work, we're learning that the opposite of a stressed and wandering mind is a mindful one. Mindfulness has to do with paying attention to our present moment experience with awareness and without any kind of emotional reactivity of what's happening. It's about keeping that button right on play to experience the moment-to-moment -moment unfolding of our lives. And mindfulness is not just a concept. It's more like practice. You have to embody this mindful mode of being to have any benefits. And a lot of the work that we're doing, we're offering people programs that give our participants a suite of exercises that they do daily in order to cultivate more moments of mindfulness in their life. It can be as simple as placing focus on the breath. 
it can be taking steps to seek solitude. Whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think on such things. On the mountain, Clark is reminded it isn't about right and wrong, but holding on. Not because there are easy answers, not because there's a clear dichotomy, not because you can make sense of suffering, and not because there's certainty, but because that's life. That's what it is. Clark takes the lesson to heart, which is why he returns to the cape and the costume, returns to Metropolis to be the hero even without a promise of a just reward. And to reinforce reality, enlightenment doesn't mean escape from difficulty. Learning the lesson doesn't mean everything suddenly goes Superman's way. That he can suddenly overcome his enemy simply by stating the moral of the story. And I'll spare you the supercut of mainstream movies doing just that. <laughs> Instead, he almost immediately takes another punch to the gut as Martha is held hostage and Clark is forced to calculate what he's willing to do to save her. Your mileage may vary, but I find that this is truer to life. That just when I think I've learned a little bit of wisdom that will supposedly make my life better, more often than not, I face a challenge soon after where that wisdom doesn't seem to apply at all. This ecclesiastical world has a habit of humbling us. Clark just learned to abide and take the pain with the gain. To be still, to still be Superman despite a fallen world, to tolerate circumstances suffering and unforeseen consequences as a distraction from where his focus should be, the good and kind, love and connection that make life worthwhile. Well, Lex just kind of eviscerates that, doesn't he? Lex is leveraging the very connections and attachments that are meant to turn Clark from despair. This isn't a situation for stillness and acceptance, mystery and passivity. It's the very pinnacle of anxiety and impossibility. However, as we said last episode, this humiliation actually gives Superman access to understand and connect with Batman, and ironically, deploy Jonathan's lessons for Batman's sake unknowingly. There may be a million reasons to embrace nihilism, to be tortured by the problem of evil, to rail against suffering and sin, and Jonathan didn't dismiss those issues. He acknowledges them as real, painful, and affecting. He simply shares his own experience and embodied wisdom to shift the focus to family, to the love of his life, to Martha. And when that happens for Batman, it has the same enlightening effect. His intellectual reasons may still stand, still have some logical validity, still be issues that affect. But instead of the nihilistic abyss, when he's truly reminded of Martha, not just the name but the memory and what it meant, the synthesis of those perspectives stays his hand and gets him to stand by Superman's side. The flash of insight, the moment of zen, of empathy and enlightenment comes not by an eloquent speech, logically laying out the case, or the moving manipulation of his emotions but by the experiential truth embodied in both their lives at the most basic level. From the very beginning for them both, it was about saving people, heroes in their hearts from the very start. For Clark, what he was called to do and what he didn't do for his dad. For Bruce, what he chose to do and what he couldn't do for his mom. That even on death's door, this alien wants someone saved. That he expects it of him. That this person's name is Martha and all the other circumstances of the U catastrophe opens the mind and opens his eyes. It is the mystery of how you make your way past his watchful dragons, his intellectual walls, his emotional armor. You never know 
what it may be, which is why you have to hold out hope in the potential of every person to change and remain open to the possibility, to resist the urge to cancel and categorize, dismiss dichotomously once and for all time. And Clark could do this even for Batman, perhaps because he grew up inclined towards many of the Eastern virtues we've discussed. Not only was Clark raised with a heightened concern about others. There's more at stake here than just our lives, Clark, or the lives of those around us. But his heightened senses would have given him an emphasis towards context, connection, interaction, and environment much more than the rest of us. He can hear well beyond our range and see interactions and energies and auras that we can't, experience a whole range of reality and sensation beyond us. This is, in fact, what Lex learns in All-Star Superman when briefly granted Superman's powers. Are you okay? Better than okay. I can see the entire electromagnetic spectrum. And those must be atoms, little clouds of possibility. Einstein couldn't connect the gravitational force to the other three. But if he could have seen this, it's so obvious. The fundamental forces are yoked by consciousness. Everything's connected. Every one. And this is how he sees things all the time, every day. And this isn't just science fiction, but what scientists speculate on how senses shift the sense of self. See the superhuman sonic senses of the undersea sperm whales. And this echolocation is so powerful, they can track a squid up to a mile away. And their social messages probably travel just as far. So knowing what we know of our really complex social lives, their sixth sense likely comes with its own emotional experiences too. But we can't name those because we don't know what those feelings are like. So what would it be like to be like reading a book while suddenly finding out just by feeling it that your ex-girlfriend is coming around the corner of an underwater shelf a half a mile away? You know the signal is meant for you just because of how it feels. And not only that, but you have an immediate accurate picture of exactly what she looks like. You can also immediately tell how much she cares about you too. Also, you've been hunting a giant squid this whole time. <laughs> so sperm whales might have a particular emotion that goes along with experiences like these. And they maybe even have a different sense of self. In the mid-1980s, a neuropsychologist named Harry Jarrison proposed that echolocated communications that are emotional in nature, so like grief or joy might be experienced by whales and dolphins as more than shared information, they actually might come in as shared feelings shared emotional experiences. Jarrison thought that this might give rise to something called the communal self, meaning that whales and dolphins might not say, I, they might always be a we. We are sad, we are sick. And there's some evidence for this in whale strandings, for example, when a bunch of whales will come up to the shore and strand themselves and die. But when we actually do studies on the whales, we find out that maybe only one or two in a hundred was actually sick. Something is going on here, and I think it may be we sick. We can barely explain what it's like to be us with words. How much more insufficient would our words for our experience be for him? This would brew an innate skepticism about the limits of words, the precepts of science, the role of logic, and the nature of reality. If no one can capture his experience in their words, the assumptions about reality get defied by a boy who can lift a bus. And if your premises are faulty, then the conclusions of your logic may be limited too. Clark's identity would be starkly contextual, based on the secrets that he had to keep. He would personally know the divide between who you present to some and how you act with others, teaching him not to judge the first face that he's presented with. 
in Japanese, there is more than one way of talking about I, talking about oneself. And there are different words for oneself. And the one that one will use actually depends on context as well. Use a different word for I. And a non-contextual general word for oneself is something that wouldn't be used very often. It would be used in a more formal situation, maybe when one's publicly speaking or giving a presentation, then one might use something like that. But normally you would use one appropriate to your particular context. For example, if you're a father and you're talking to a child, you would call your yourself father rather than saying I. You would say things like father is cooking dinner or something rather than I am cooking dinner because you're talking about your own social role in that context. They are showing themselves from the perspective of others. Superman was never real. He learns to look at things with nuance because he knows all too well that things aren't always what they seem. Clark longs for the love of his parents, so he's obedient and draws from their wisdom early on, rather than rejecting it out of rebellion as is often the Western norm. He comes to value institutions, society, religion, journalism, etc. He would have grown up with ambiguity, uncertainty, and have to adapt to abiding without answers or closure. There is no clear future for an alien with extraordinary powers, and there was no Krypton for the first 33 years of his life. Clark has always had to deal with contradiction, paradox, and tensions. I love my parents who aren't my parents. I love this world that's not my world. I have so much power to abuse that I must not use. I have so much potential, but I must wait. I have so much to say, but a secret to keep. All of these tensions, dualities, and paradoxes must be reconciled and dealt with, forcing Clark into early maturity and wisdom, which he carries through and on into adulthood. Life lessons experienced and embodied and not just lectures in a cave or programming in a pod. And he takes all those counterintuitive lessons contrary to the norm and merges them with the best the West has to offer. Individuality, freedom, truth, choice, and so on. I grew up in Kansas, General. About as American as it gets. With an emphasis on nonverbal, experiential, and communal wisdom, one of the weaknesses of Eastern thought is the inability to convey them in the same way that you can in the West. You have to live the lesson. But Clark's done that, which makes him almost like a high-level Eastern thinker, enjoying all the benefits of being raised in the West. A bridge between worlds, befitting of our best and greatest hero. And despite the difficulty, we can benefit as well. Dr. Nisbet reflects on the effects of his decades of study. The West has given things to East Asia. They do very well, thank you, with science. The Western tricks are not hard to learn. Logic and categorization, these things are easy to learn. East Asians are doing it very easily. The cognitive advantages of Easterners are much more difficult to transfer to Westerners because they're not purely cognitive. They're bound up with socio-emotional things. They're bound up with their understanding of other people. So use myself as an example. I've spent the last 15 years learning from East Asians. <laughs> I've had unbelievable East Asian students for the last 15 years. And I do think I have become somewhat more Asian. I do think I have uh, developed some things. I think I am less likely to assume that if there's a contradiction, I've got to hammer one of them into the ground and elevate the other. I think I'm more likely to see merit in each of two opposing arguments. I think I'm more aware of change, the likelihood of change in a given situation. I'm certainly more attentive to context. Now, some of that may just be getting older. It pays to pay attention to context, so you learn that. So I think there are huge intellectual skill advantages of 
east and west. The east now for, in the case of Japan, 150 years, in the case of China, more like 100 years, have been adopting the intellectual tools of Westerners, which are not hard to learn. I hope someone will teach the advantages of uh, Asian ways of thinking. Even if it is in our first instinct, we can learn to consider context, limit logic, and discuss dialectically, not east or west, but the best of both. Not Batman versus Superman, but Batman and Superman. <laughs> okay, I've rambled on long enough. No end notes on this one because I'm exhausted and they'll quickly become me just trying to bring back everything that was cut and long enough was long ago. And of course, I do want to talk about ego, shadow, yin-yang, harmony, dragons, duality, martial arts, and more, dystopia, avatar, new Superman, seven samurai anime, and the art of war. And I highly recommend The Farewell in theaters now. But so long, I let go, I let be, farewell for now, and a sincere thanks to all who contributed to the fundraiser so that the site can keep going, you're the best. Next episode, we're going to dial back on the philosophy and go back to basics. But until next time, thanks so much for listening. If you like what you heard, please share the show and subscribe. I'm Doc, signing off. See you next time. When I was young, it seemed that life was so wonderful A miracle, oh it was beautiful, magical And then the birds in the trees, well they be singing so happily But joyfully, oh playfully watching me then they sent me away and teach me how to be sensible or logical or responsible practical and then they show me the world could be so dependable and clinical intellectual cynical there were times when all the world's asleep when questions run too deep For such a simple man Won't you please Please tell me what I've learned I know it sounds absurd Please tell me who I am what you say or they'll be calling you radical or liberal or fanatical criminal or won't you sign up your name we'd figure so acceptable respectable or presentable a vegetable there were times when all the world's asleep when questions run too deep For such a simple man Won't you please Please tell me what I've learned I know it sounds absurd Please tell me 
You're the answer, son. 